a Superman action figure in a toy coffin, a blue shirt and red jacket, a first flight in the sun above the Arctic tundra. These are some of the moments that define my Superman fandom. Together on this podcast, we journey across time and media to examine, discover, and reconsider the creative visions that have shaped the Man of Steel. Welcome to Digging for Kryptonite, a Superman fan journey. I am your host, Anthony Desiato. Joining me to discuss the Joe Kelly era of action comics is returning guest, Mike Sangregorio. Welcome back. Hi, everyone. So this is the last episode of Digging for Kryptonite for 2021. We'll be back at the top of 2022 with an epic weekly five-part discussion of Superman the Animated Series. I am really excited for this. I'm calling it the mixtapes because we'll sort of be looking at the series as a whole, but grouping the episodes by the main characters and topics, themes, storylines that defined the show. So it won't be an episode by episode rewatch, but we'll be grouping it in that way. So that's the mixtapes. And that will premiere the first week of January, 2022. So we'll have two weeks off after this episode, but hopefully this will be an opportunity for folks to catch up on any episodes that They might have missed and hopefully an opportunity for some new people to come to the show as well. I could save this for the end, but I I really want to say this now. You know, of course, the show started at the end of 2020, so it's been more than a year, but this is our first full year. And I know I say this all the time, but I mean it from the bottom of my heart. And it's I think it's always worth repeating. I love doing the show. I love talking about Superman. And I am deeply, deeply appreciative of the guests like yourself, Mike, and of the audience. It, uh, I always say, and it's true, that I would do this even if people weren't listening because I love talking about Superman, but the fact that people listen and seem to enjoy and will share their own thoughts you know, and, a fe- and feelings and ask questions about the stuff that we're talking about, that level of engagement just takes it to a whole other level. So uh, honestly, and, and not to be hyperbolic, but really the experience over this past year plus has exceeded anything that I really thought I might I might achieve you know uh, doing this podcast so uh, again really thank you to everyone who has been part of this in any way shape or form and I actually I want to share something someone left a review of the show on Apple Podcasts and I uh, look bear with me I know this is I know this is kind of self-serving but uh, the part that I, <laughs> that I really want to single out has to do with the guests uh, so you know to honor you and, and all of the other guests who have been on the show this year uh, I want to read this piece of a review uh, by um, someone named Zach Foster. Zach, thank you for the review. And I will say, for anyone who hasn't, uh, if you haven't left a rating or review on Apple Podcasts in particular, if you have a minute, and maybe you know you have your phone in front of you right now as you're listening to this, uh, I certainly would appreciate it. It does help. It does help other people find the show. Uh, and it feeds the ego as well a little bit, I won't lie. <laughs> but uh, if you have a second, I really do appreciate it. Uh, but this review, um, again, really uh, you know, really stood out to me. Uh, Zach wrote that listening to Anthony and his guests takes you into a fandom filled with passion and love, not only for the character, but each other. It's a beautiful thing to want to interject or find yourself laughing along with these relatable, thoughtful individuals. There's a lot more that's very kind, but again, I've already been self-serving enough, so I'll stop there. But I wanted to mention that part specifically because, again, I really just wanted to shout out the guests who have been on the show. Um, We would only get so far if I didn't have people on here who just brought so much 
you know, thoughtfulness, excitement, enthusiasm, passion, people who have done crazy homework assignments for these episodes. Uh, again, I just really appreciate it. And, and again, to see something like that in a review where people are responding to what we're doing really means a lot. So thank you, Mike. Thank you to all of the guests and thank you to the audience. Now on to item number two. I want to give a shout out to a buddy of mine, a great friend who I've known for many, many years and a mutual friend of ours, Mike, Ralph Puma. So Ralph is a talented musician and filmmaker, writer, photographer, and he recently binged the entire thus far uh, Digging for Kryptonite podcast series because he's been texting me as he's been catching up on our 40 episodes. That's a lot of listening to me talk in a short amount of time. So <laughs> that's, that's great. I appreciate that. And Zach, uh, Zach, uh, I, I'm, I'm thinking of our reviewer. Um, Ralph also just became uh, one of our patrons. And one of the rewards that, that select patrons have is the ability to submit a comment or question to be read on air. And Ralph posed a question that is not directly tied to the Joe Kelly action comics discussion that we're going to have. It's more of a big picture question, but I thought that, especially for our last episode of the calendar year, it would be fun to to try to unpack a little bit. And Mike, I want to get your take. So, and this is something that I think for all of us as comic book fans, we've probably thought about this in some way, shape, or form uh, over the years. So Ralph asks, what are your perspectives on the toy box theory? That when a writer begins their arc, they take the toys out of the box. And when a writer ends their arc, they put them back as neatly and closely to how they left them. Basically, do you feel writers should be beholden to a canon and chronology to the best of their ability? Or should they be focused on character alone to build upon the legend? So I've been I've been thinking about this and I, I have a bit of a... T Let me say this. The short answer is, for me, it depends. Now I want to toss it to you and then I'll, I'll give my fuller answer. But Mike, what do you think? Uh, no, I think that when someone is trying to tell a story, only the story matters, um, especially when you're dealing with comics, because, you know, fans will, it goes back to Stan and the no prize. Fans will fill in the gaps for you. Fans will make up the explanations, but the story has to be good and the story has to be worth retelling time and time again. So I, I do not ascribe to the toy box theory i don't want anyone to worry about what came before i want them to tell a good story if it's a good story then it will be part of what is in a future writer's toy box if it is a bad story then it will be forgotten and it won't be part of anyone's toy box but even the concept of a toy box is something that changes over time. If you had told a returning GI in the 40s that Superman no longer you know, fought slumlords, they'd be like, what are you talking about? That's part of my version of Superman. So that changes, and the toy box changes each time. So I don't think you can be too worried about continuity because most people won't have read all the stories you will have. Uh, and if you tell a good story and do a good job, they might want to go back and see what influenced you. But if you're just slavishly retelling the stories that came before then you know you're not gonna you're not gonna reach a wider audience and your story is not gonna live live on beyond you all right you heard it from mike and i will say i agree with a lot of that although i don't know that i would go quite that far so like i said i think for me it depends and one of the things though that i do recognize and i think probably all of us do you know in a lot of instances when we're thinking about and look we're talking about superman you know what are the best superman stories when I mean, you look at those lists that normally come up most of them are out of continuity or if they were originally intended to be in continuity they're not any longer yet they're still on all of these lists so I really think there's something to be said for that. But I guess when I say it depends, I think, you know, if you're, if you're, 
hired to write Superman or action comics on a monthly basis and you're in a, in a wider DC universe and you've picked up the baton from the person who came before and you're going to hand it off to the next person, do I think you should necessarily be able to just kind of like blow the whole thing up? You know, not necessarily because I think for a lot of us, you know, part of the fun of reading a character with with the continuity and, and in a shared universe is seeing how the story develops. However, I don't think that everything needs to be put back entirely in the box and entirely the way we found it. And one of the things that I think does need to happen, and we've seen it happen in certain respects, especially in recent years, is that the mythology does need to move forward, right? And I think, you know, to, again, using Superman as our example, I think Lois and Clark having a child makes perfect sense. Like, I feel like that was such a natural progression for the characters and for the mythology. So I think there should be forward movement. I don't think everything needs to be undone at the end of a run, but I, I guess I don't also think that everything should be blown up either. But again, exception to that, the, you know what I go back to? Daredevil, the Marvel Knights era of Daredevil, especially when you had, uh, you know, Bendis to Brubaker, I guess to Andy Diggle too, to an extent. You know, this idea that, you know, they would they would each end their run with Matt in the worst possible <laughs> predicament. <laughs> and then the next writer would just would pick it up and run. And I but I think that spoke more to maybe the relationship that those particular writers had more than it. So I think when there's an opportunity to do something like that, I think that's awesome. I don't know that that opportunity is always there. So a bit long-winded, but I guess ultimately it, it depends. But I think it's a fascinating question. And for our audience, I would love to hear what you all think about that as well. The, the older I get and the less time I have to read uh, comics, especially the ones that are coming out currently, the less I care about how it all fits together. Um, you know, you, you see in the movies that they're making, whether it's on, you know, the Marvel characters or Superman or whomever else, they pick the best bits of business from different stories. So again, I, I go back to this, like, if you tell a very good story, it's going to influence someone who may reference it later on. Um, there is something going on in the current Superman comics, where Grant Morrison recently wrote a story called Superman and the Authority, which begins in the 60s and seems to indicate that this version of Superman was around during Camelot and during all of that stuff, and aged and eventually passed the baton on to John and a new younger generation. But the series ends with a segue into the current titles, which I'm not reading and I have no intention of reading, and that's not a knock against them. I just, I don't know, they're not on my radar. Um, but that was very frustrating because I was like, well, I don't want to go read that. I, I want, you know, my favorite writer to, to finish up their story here. So that's part of why I go back to this idea of like, I no longer care about the toy box because I've read a lot of these things and even I can't follow some of these stories. And it's like, I've got a, I've got a major in this stuff. Like, just tell me a good story. Like, stop worrying about everything else. Like, the fans will will stitch it together. They'll glue it back together. They, they've been doing it since the beginning. So, I don't know. But but also, again, you know, I'm really involved in the week-to-week the -week stuff. Um, I, don't, I don't have as much experience with Superman as you do, but this is something that Spider-Man goes through all the time where, you know, you're talking about, well, he got married, he had a kid, he did all this other stuff. And every once in a while, they'll just reset Spider-Man back to whatever the current writer's nostalgia is. And I, you know, the first time I got upset and the second time I was like, all right, this is what we're doing. Fine. Great. You know, entertain me. And then I'll fill in the gaps later on. So that, that's kind of how I go. It's like, is it a good story? Great. If 
I'll figure out a way to work it into my personal canon. If that upsets someone else, then you got to ask yourself why you're reading these things in the first place. Well, I think, you know, I think you mentioned an, an interesting aspect and I think, I think this is, will likely be a deciding factor for a lot of people, which is, you know, how are you reading and consuming these stories? Because I think if you are, like you said, you're not following the current monthly Superman books. If you were, I don't know, maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't feel differently, but maybe you would for myself. I mean, I haven't followed on that monthly basis in quite some time. However, I've been reading a ton of Superman for this podcast over the past year. And so my perspective has shifted a little bit because I have been taking this long view and looking at Superman in the, in the golden and silver and bronze ages and post-crisis and a little bit of the new 52 and we'll get to rebirth and all that stuff. And so, you know, for myself, yeah, I, I can now look at all of this and see that, well, there's a lot that's changed. There's a lot that, that's been done and undone. And, you know, I can kind of look at any of these stories and see their place in the larger picture. So I think my perspective, certainly reading those stories is a little different, but I do think if you are reading week to week, month to month, that can be frustrating if the, the, the continuity goes out the window. So I think that that definitely plays a role, but it was great to get your perspective on that. And, uh, and again, I, I would love to hear from, from other folks on that as well. And uh, thank you to Ralph for becoming a patron and for binging this podcast series <laughs> and for that question. Hi, Ralph. And Ralph will be a guest on Digging for Kryptonite next year. We've been talking about a, a number of different episode ideas. So uh, you'll be hearing Ralph on the podcast before too long. And for anyone who listens to my other show, My Comic Shop History, you've heard his music on that show. Or if you've watched any of my documentary films, you've heard it uh, there. So Ralph's been part of the, uh, the world of Flat Squirrel Productions for a long time, and I appreciate it. Okay. So this episode, let's get into the meat of this episode. We're talking about the Joe Kelly era of action comics. Now, longtime listeners of this podcast will likely recall that the second and third episodes of this podcast series were all about the Jeff Loeb, Joe Kelly era of the Superman books from the early 2000s. These were, this was the era that included storylines like Y2K, Emperor Joker, Critical Condition, President Luther, Our Worlds at War. You were a guest for one of the episodes, Mike. Uh, Scott Honig was a guest for the other one. And in that episode, obviously, we talked about Joe Kelly's work, but it was largely within the context of the larger run and those big tentpole storylines that I mentioned. And I always thought it would be interesting to go back because he, in the end, wrote 50 issues of Action Comics. He was on the book from 760 to 810. <laughs> so that's a sizable body of work, and he stayed on a, a a good deal longer than Jeff Loeb did. Jeff, you know, Loeb left the Superman title and went on to do Superman, Batman, but, but Kelly stayed on for a good while longer. And when we did those couple of episodes, you know, there were, there were a couple of issues in particular, most notably action comic 775 often included on those lists of top Superman stories that we only touched on briefly because I knew we would come back to it later. So that's why we're here now talking about Joe Kelly's work on action comics and I also thought, just in terms of symmetry, you know, two of our earliest episodes of this podcast were about this period in Superman, and I thought it would be cool as we're finishing our first full year to kind of go back to that. I'll also share this. You know, the reason why the Loeb-Kelly era made up episodes two and three of this podcast <laughs> is that I've, I had long held that up as my favorite period of Superman comics. And it was one of those things where it's like, listen, if this podcast goes away in a few episodes, at least I'll have covered my favorite period of Superman. That's why I started there. It was the most important to me. And, you know, rereading it at the time, and then again now for the, for the Kelly piece specifically, 
there's a lot about it that I think holds up and there's a lot about it that I enjoyed rereading and it will always hold a special place for me. I mean, I talked about it then, but reading those comics when I was 12 and 13 and it, you know, it was, it was an experience that I think, you know, you and, and anyone listening to this have had with some comic or movie at some point. It just kind of hit me at the right time and resonated with me. That being said, now having, especially over the course of the crisis till death event, having gone back and read the beginning of the triangle era of the Superman titles, I can now say, and I will say on the record here, that uh, <laughs> that the beginning of the triangle era of the Superman books has now supplanted the Loeb Kelly era as my favorite period of Superman comics. Yeah, but at the same time, I still have a lot of love for the Loeb Kelly era. But, you know, that's one of the things with this podcast. It's like as I'm going back to a lot of these things or visiting, you know, uh, pieces for the first time, you know, my perspective is shifting a little bit. And uh, it's fascinating for me. Hopefully it is for the audience. But uh, and I don't say that to knock any of the Loeb Kelly stuff, but just to kind of put it in the context where it, this has been a little bit of an experiment and there has been that little bit of a shift. Nevertheless, let's get into the joe kelly era of action comics now like i said he was on the book from 760 through 810 uh we're not covering all of that because again we we, we talked about a fair amount when we did our Loeb kelly era uh episodes earlier specifically though i did want to go back to a couple of issues uh in particular uh 761 that's the issue where superman and wonder woman spend a thousand years in valhalla uh as i said before action 775 the introduction of manchester black and the elite uh, that's the story. What's so funny about truth, justice, and the American way? So those are a couple to revisit. And then the new issues for this podcast that we didn't get to last time, because last time we stopped with Our Worlds at War. So here's what came after that. And I only skipped issues that um, were guest written by someone else or were part of a crossover that's not readily available. And by that, I mean specifically Return to Krypton 2. Uh, so what we will be talking about, Action 783 through 790, 792 and 795 through 810. Uh, we'll likely also touch on the uh, Kelly's su uh, short Superboy run. Uh, we might have a couple of words on that. And while I didn't get to them, I know you did read the Superman Batman annuals that Joe Kelly wrote, and we'll, we'll make sure that we uh, have some time for that as well. It's fitting and timely don't you think, Mike, that uh, we're talking about whatever happened or what's so funny about truth, justice, and the American way, not long after DC announced a change to that slogan, that it's now truth, justice, and a better tomorrow. And I want to get your take on that in a second. I, I do just want to say that, you know, I've not, I've not said anything about that either on social media or on this podcast since DC made that announcement. And I guess in part because I knew we were going to do this episode and I figured this would be a good place to speak about it. But I, and not that people are waiting on bated breath for my thoughts on this, but I, I, at the same time, I don't want people to think that my not saying about it, my, my not saying anything about it is a statement in and of itself. It's not. I'm actually all for this change. I think it makes sense for a number of reasons. Um, do you have any thoughts on this change in, in slogan that, that you would want to share? Uh, I'm all for it because truth, justice, and the American way is not his original slogan. It was just truth and justice, and they added the American way later on when they wanted to make the character uh, more representative of the establishment. So I've never liked that phrase. Uh, actually, the the title of 775 is my least favorite thing about it. So I was very, very happy when DC recently announced that they were changing that for, for something else because I, I think that Superman represents... Um, 
the the best aspirations of a person who wants to do good. And uh, while I hope we exemplify those ideals, we don't always do. So it should be something that speaks to everyone. And I think an evolution of that theme is very important. I I agree with that. And, you know, also <laughs> not to, again, I think you you got to the heart of it and I and I agree with all of that, but also, you know, to put on my mercenary business hat as well, it's like when they make a Superman movie and they market it around the world, it's like, you, you know, both for business pers- <laughs> from a business perspective, but also just, again, in terms of the messaging, right? You want something that would speak to everyone. So there's that. And then the final piece that has been in my head for a while, you know, DC might've made it official now that the slogan is, is no longer truth, justice in the American way, but they've, they've been building towards this. I feel like for a very long time. I mean, the, the first thing that I thought of was Superman Returns. Because there's that key moment where Perry, you know, Superman has returned, he's back on the scene, and Perry White is giving his marching orders to the reporters, you know, trying to uh, get the story about this. And one of the things he says is like, does he still stand for truth, justice, all that stuff? And I remember, even as a, as a, I think I was in college when that movie came out, but, you know, I remember I was, I, it was noticeable to me that they were purposely not using that full slogan. So, so again, I mean, they might have made it official now, but I, I, I think this is something that has kind of been an idea for a while anyway. I, I don't think it's a question of marketing because at the end of the day, I don't think that anyone in any part of the country is going to go watch a Superman movie and not think Superman is America. I think that's indelible. I think it's the same reason that Captain America is popular, even though it's in his name. I, I think it has more to do with why we want to root for the protagonist of an adventure story. And when you say the American way, you, you're very specifically saying the, the again, the, the establishment. Uh, and, and that hasn't always been what Superman is for. It's certainly not what his son is for. And his son is currently being positioned as you know, kind of the, the character that's going to be the standard bearer going forward. Um, but, but my big thing is mostly the American way was not there in the beginning. Uh, it was a change and people need to understand that these things do evolve. And when a change is made, it's not to personally attack someone. It's to say, Hey, we changed it in the first place and now we're changing it to something else. And when our kids are our age, they're going to change it to something else. Cause that's what this stuff does. Stories have to be retold in the context of the people who are hearing them or else the stories aren't going to outlive us. So I say, make the change. No one's, no one can take your history from you, but you know, if we're lucky, we'll get a few more fans, uh, going forward yeah no right on all right so let's dive into the joe kelly era of action comics so as i often like to do let me uh, let me start with the big picture question two parts a did you enjoy this reread what were your overall impressions but b as far as kelly generally because i know you've long been a joe kelly fan and that's why you were on for the, the the prior episode that we did in episode three and why you're back for this one i mean what is it about joe kelly and specifically his work on superman that you were such a fan of. Uh, sure. So Joe Kelly is one of my favorite writers of all time. Um, the The reason I like him is I kept reading his work and not realizing that it was him. I would read a comic and I'd say, oh, I really like this. This is something I should go back to. And I'm sure most people go through this, but when it happens enough, you, you keep seeing the same name pop up, whether it's on X-Men, Deadpool, Superman, Superboy, you know, whatever. Um, he is funny 
And for me, it's like, if I'm going to read a comic and it's going to be boring, at least let it be funny. But Joe Kelly has the added benefit of never being boring. His stories uh, tend to be very dense, which I really like about them. Uh, This is probably the third or fourth time I've read the entire run. um, And I was still getting things out of them because even though I knew where the plot was going, I was following the character moments. And that seems to be his calling card, is that he puts character first. And for me, especially as as I get older and I'm less invested in the, the bigger canon, it's like I want to know about the characters. And he puts that right up front. And I and I love that. I really do. Uh, whether it's, again, whether it's Deadpool, who he gave an origin to, and he added so much to that character that's now a worldwide brand, or whether it's Superman, a character that had already been around for 65 years before he came in and uh, gave a new voice to, uh, whether it's his creator-owned stuff, his animation work, whatever it is, if if his name is on something, I know it's going to be money well spent. I've only met him once at a convention, but I would love to meet him again. I would love to buy him a drink. I would love to pick his brain. Um, we're not covering it today, but I'll just say very quickly, his run on Justice League, which begins in JLA 69 and goes through uh, the Obsidian Age, is my favorite Justice League story of all time. More than anything written by Grant Morrison or anything written by anyone else, it is perfect. And I love it, and I've never met anyone else who likes it as much as I do, so I don't know what's wrong with me, but uh, I am a fan of this writer, and I just, he makes me laugh. I just, I love his work. Well said, man, I'm going to break your heart here. I, You know... So we left out the JLA stuff because I figured, all right, maybe we'll get to it. But, you know, I mean, I read it as it was coming out and I'd be, look, I will be, I would be open to revisiting it. I don't know for sure that I could guarantee, like I would definitely do an episode because again, I, I did read it at the time. But look, you know, one of the, one of the whole reasons I do this podcast is to go back and see if my perspective has changed. So I'm not... My starting point is not one of being as enamored with it as you are, but, you know, we'll see. And But that is very high praise. I mean, to put it, I mean, there have been so many Justice League runs, but especially in that era in particular, to put that over more, for you, of all people, to put that above Morrison and Mark Wade's run as well is, uh, yeah, uh, that's very high praise. I, I think one of the one of the key things is, you know, I, I discovered Joe Kelly on X-Men. I'm a huge X-Men fan, and uh, he took over the book or the books, I guess, X-Men and Uncanny, in the late 90s when I was devouring everything. And again, I, I didn't know his name. I just knew like, oh, okay, this is this is the new guy. And I really enjoyed it. And I'm not even saying that it's a run that's aged well, but it's one of those things where once in a while and I go back and I say, well, you really, even in your brief tenure, you really informed the way I see the characters. Because again, you, you put character first and you made it funny. It wasn't just disposable nonsense. It might still be disposable, but at least I laughed. Um, so when he made the transition over to DC, again, I, I didn't really follow the Superman stuff because I didn't really read all that stuff as it was coming out when we were in high school. But certainly later on, once I started reading his Justice League run and once I realized that, oh, there were 50 issues of Superman that this guy I should check out, I got all of them and I, I love them. Um, they're probably one of my most complete runs of, of action. But, um, you know, the big thing for me is his character work makes you understand the mind of a guy who can fly to the sun and fly back and do all these great and wonderful things, but making sure that he's still very grounded and why he's doing these things. Like, I I don't feel like he takes the traditional route of saying, well, if we're going to make Superman more relatable, we got to knock his powers out or we got to show why he's the best person in the world. It's like, or excuse me, I got to tell you why he's the best person in the world. I'm going to show you. And, you know, issue 775 is one of the 
dozen greatest Superman stories ever written, and most people will agree on that, is written by Joe Kelly. It's written by this random guy who was on this book, who most people probably couldn't name another work by him. So I, I always point to that, and I always say, no, he, he understands this character. He understands him very well. Uh, and as a result, we got a couple of years of some great stories. Is every issue perfect? No, but he stuck around to tell a really good story. He stuck around through all these crossovers and these weekly books and these plot threads that he was given from other writers and had to pass off to other writers and, and he did good work. It's, it's good weekly comics, so, excuse me, monthly comics. So again, it's just like, I know I'm biased. I love the guy's work, but I reread it this time and I was still like, no, that this is stuff I could, I could recommend. Well said. And I will, I will share and kind of piggy piggyback off of that. Overall, I enjoyed my reread for this episode. I really did. I think that a lot of what he wrote still stands up, really holds up well. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think he a hundred percent, gets the character of Superman and is able to tap into that core in a very human, relatable way. And, you know, this is something that when I'm talking about comics in particular, I think, it, you know, when, when we talk about live action or even animation, I think it's it's an easier path to get to this point because you have the emotion of a, of a performance. It brings it to life in a different way. But in comics in particular... I guess what I found I respond to the most are stories that really treat these characters, these larger than life characters as people. And there are, I mean, I think his run overall, but certain issues in particular that really get drive that home. And, you know, we'll talk about 775 and we'll talk about a lot of the other big stories. I mean, just to give some context for people in case you haven't you know, looked at these issues in a long time especially in terms of the that big post Our Worlds at War chunk that we'll be talking about. Uh, you know, th those issues deal with a bit of the post Our Worlds at War emotional baggage and PTSD that Superman is dealing with. There's a great issue where he's in therapy with Dr. Foster and he's working through some stuff. Uh, he also continues to deal with Manchester Black and uh, he writes two chapters in the eight-part ending battle uh, crossover that oh I, there's some stuff I want to talk to uh, talk to you about that uh, I I had fun with that and there's one thing in particular that was great and uh, and then he also deals with uh, this bit of business with the General Zod uh, the version of General Zod that was in in play at this time uh, and there there are a number of other pieces as well but you know plot wise those were those were a lot of the big things that that were at play but you know my two favorite issues from this run were uh, Action 792, the missing issue, where the newspaper vendor who Clark gets his papers from every morning goes missing and he investigates. And Action 810, Joe Kelly's final issue on the book called Walking Midnight, where he and Lois celebrate New Year's Eve in every time zone across the globe. Those two issues were my favorite. And I know... Again, 775 is awesome. The Wonder Woman issue is great. And I know a lot of people will, you know, will cite those as their favorite from his run, and that's awesome. But for me, those two, uh, and there are others as well, but those two in particular really, uh, really struck a chord with me and I think just got at the heart of uh, of the character in a way that you don't often see. So, uh, you know, were there some issues and storylines that really didn't do anything for me? Yeah, you know, the Joker's last laugh tie-in, the two-parter with uh, cancer, cancer with a K, and uh, guy the, the most bonkers, bizarre take on Guy Gardner I've ever seen. Uh, you know, there were there were some, some issues. And even the Zod stuff, I think, 
I want to I want to talk to you about that because I don't I don't know how well that really worked all in all. Uh, but so there were some things that you know didn't necessarily wow me, but there was enough here that really resonated. I mean, I there you know, and I, I say this a lot. People were like, "This guy's like a weepy mess," but there were there were a few things that made me tear up, and uh, and that that means a lot to me. So uh, so I again, I, I'm a fan. I appreciate Kelly's work, and I appreciate this run for sure. My favorite issue of the Kelly run is seven eighty three. Uh, the the gift. Um, do you remember that one? Wait, where is that the the choice where he, where he on the cover it says the choice, but the story is actually called the gift. Yes, I don't know what the discrepancy is, but yes, yeah. Um, for anyone not familiar with this story, it's Superman offers uh, four supervillains uh, just a chance at redemption. Just they're, they're doing bad things. They're being supervillains. He's getting fed up. And he's just, he's like, I, I, I have to believe that there is a better way of doing things because I can punch you guys into the sun. It's not going to change anything. But if I can get even one of you to stand next to me and to dedicate the great power that you have to doing what I do, well, then that's great. That, that'll almost make all this nonsense worth it. And it's the Ocean Master a character, two characters that Kelly created, the Stone Emperor and Scorch. And finally, it's Major Disaster, <coughs> who is a character that I was not familiar with before this issue, but, and I kid you not, has become one of my favorite DC characters of all time because of this issue. Because he is ultimately the one who accepts Superman's offer. And I love the idea that you could be a major big bad from the silver age who gets reinvigorated during the nineties with a terrible deal with the devil. And even though you spent decades fighting the green lantern, you accept someone being nice to you for the first time. Uh, and then a uh, major disaster goes on to be a member of the justice league during the obsidian age. And I find his arc to be the most interesting because when you're standing in the watchtower and the world's greatest heroes are looking around and they're looking at their peers, they see you. Uh, say a man who's tried to kill them before, um, who nonetheless has phenomenal power and who wants to uh, fight the good fight and help everyone because Superman was nice to him. And it's hokey and it's dumb and it's a weird story and I don't know anyone else likes it as much as I do, but I love it. It's It's in my like... If the house is on fire and everyone's safe, please grab this box. Uh, I've read it a hundred times, and if I'm lucky enough to meet him again, I'm definitely going to have him sign it. But uh, it's just one of those things where I always go back, where it's like, I don't care how many times the DC continuity gets reset. There was a time where Paul Booker, major disaster, had a face turn, had a redemption arc, joined the Justice League, and did the right thing because of Superman, because he lives in a world with Superman. I'm so glad you mentioned that issue. That was a favorite of mine as well. And it's funny because on Twitter earlier today, as of this recording, I posted the covers to the two issues I just mentioned. And someone within minutes commented and was like, I also really like this issue. This is my favorite. And it was the one you just cited. And I was like, yes, like totally. I agree. That one, that was the, I believe that that was the first one that we read in the post Our World at War. For this arc. Yeah. Yeah, 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 for this run. So this was right after Our World's at War. So... You know, this was after the big battle with Imperiex. Uh, General Sam Lane uh, lost his life. Pa Kent is missing. Uh, you know, a, a number of heroes lost their lives. There was an un, you know, untold amount of destruction. So, you know, Superman has adopted the black, you know, the black uh, S shield to signify that he's in, in mourning and to honor those who have perished. So, you know, this is a Superman who's like pretty emotionally fraught. Uh, 
you know, at this point. And the what I like is that Kelly juxtaposes, you know, an article by Clark Kent, the reporter. And most of Kelly's issues begin with a quote from a Clark Kent article, which I love. A nice, just such a nice little touch. And uh, and that's juxtaposed with Superman giving, you know, the basically the pitch that he's giving to these these villains across the the story. And I guess what you know really stood out to me. And I'm so, I, and look, I know I'm a sucker for the Pa Kent stuff. I am. I just, anything on the farm, anything with Pa, I'm there for it. And you know, in Clark's article, he talks about you know his missing father and one of their you know many chats under the tree. You know, in the, as as dawn is breaking on the farm, where they would have these heart to hearts and this one in particular, you know, Clark got beaten up at school, you know, by, by one of the bullies and he kind of wants to retaliate. And Pa's like, look, you know, he shouldn't have, you know, he doesn't have a right to lay an angry hand on you. Like you're perfectly within your rights to, you know, set him straight and teach him a lesson. He goes, but might there be a better way? Like, what if you reached out with, you know, compassion and a second chance instead of a fist? And this idea, right, of, of a second chance, and, and I think it's actually Superman in his speech who says that, you know, like, do you realize what a gift a second chance is? And it was just so, I loved that it stemmed from a lesson that his dad taught him out in the field, but I loved that he took it to heart. And because you don't always see Superman or any, I mean, any character in, in the comic book world solve a problem in, in that way and it's one of those things where it's like you know it's worth trying may and look one out of four right <laughs> and all the others turn their back on it but one and he changed you know he changed the course of that person's life you think about all the people he saved because now this person is on a better path it it, it was great uh, you know again like you said before but, you know showing versus telling and and you know this showed you know what superman can do and i guess the other thing i love is that you know I don't know how many other characters really could do it. You know, I think there's something when the most powerful hero who could punch you into the sun extends that hand and offers you a chance. You know, that means something. Uh, I'm glad you brought I love, man, I love that issue so much. Love it. Truly love it. it was, yeah, that was, that was really terrific. Uh, so, well, actually, let's, I guess maybe go somewhat uh, chronologically. So 761, that's the second issue in the Kelly run. And we did talk about this last time, but I think this was the episode that I did with Scott where, uh, you know, it begins with this very playful, fun scene where uh, Lois and Clark are in bed and she's teasing him and asking him, you know, who would Superman marry? Because, right, we had this bit of business where Jimmy Olsen had taken a photo of Superman and Superman had forgotten to take off his wedding ring and the Daily Star got a hold of the photo and they published it. And so now everyone is wondering who is Mrs. Superman. So that's the setup for the scene. And, you know, Lois is like, well, who would Superman marry? And, you know, <laughs> tell me what you think, but as especially as a married man myself, man, I felt for Clark in this scene. It's like, there's, I mean, even though Lois explicitly says this is not a trap, it's like, that's a trap. You can't, I mean, you can't, like, that's not an answer you can give. <laughs> what What did you think as you were reading that? <laughs> I think that's why of all the women in the universe, uh, Superman loves Lois because she'll ask him things like that where 
you know, again, the man can hear a comet passing by and he's made uncomfortable by this, you know, brunette who doesn't get intimidated by anything. Uh, so I, I really like that because I think it spoke to the heart of their relationship. It's like this guy can do whatever he wants, but at the end of the day, this is the world's greatest reporter and she's going to be able to make him uncomfortable. Um, I, I kind of wanted part of me just for him to say the most ridiculous, like, again, like Lana or something, and then get up and be like, oh, got to go, and then fly out of the room or be like, oh, man, Maxima or your sister. Just like something like really funny and then just fly out of the room and have her stew the entire day. But the fact that he doesn't immediately answer, the fact that he kind of um, reserves back is a good setup for what happens next because it almost seems as if he does have an answer and he doesn't want to lie to his wife. So obviously that's not the case. You see that later on in the issue, but again, Kelly tees you up nicely of saying, well, there've been plenty of other out of continuity stories where Superman and Wonder Woman have a very nice life together. Is this going to be one of them? The answer is no, but the, again, the story is worth telling. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And of course, you know, Wonder Woman then does show up, and she and uh, Clark get pulled into Asgard, and they're they're sucked into this battle that lasts a hundred a thousand years. And you know, the the crux of this issue is that you know Clark is away from Lois for a thousand years. He's fighting side by side, day after day, night after night, with Diana, and. He's forgetting, you know, he's beginning to forget what Lois sounds like or smells like, but Diana's right there. And in their final night together, they're this close to having a moment and he stops and he says, even after all these years, Lois is still the only one. And he thanks Diana for being his best friend. And she accepts that. And she's like, no, like this is, this is the right way. You know, what's funny. There's something that kind of dawned on me since we started recording, because I felt a little bit differently coming into this and it's changed a little bit since we've been doing this for 40 minutes, which is, and we're only on the first issue that we're talking about. <laughs> uh, you know, I want to go back to Zach Foster and his review because Zach said that these episodes can be lengthy, but that's not a, a detriment because the quality content is there and you can break it up or you can play it at double speed. So I appreciate that. And hopefully others feel the same way. Also, we never aim for these two-hour episodes. It just sort of happens because I think there's just so much to talk about and we have so much passion for the character. But, you know, my my take on this uh, has always been, well, that's really great and sweet and idealistic. I, I also feel, I guess I look at it from more of a practical, realistic perspective. And I feel like, you know... Would Lois want him to make that choice? Like I and and not and not to get personal here, but it's like I don't know. And I, or I'll speak for myself. I mean, as someone in a married couple, if this were the scenario that my wife and I found ourselves in, where you know one of us was away for a thousand years in these unbearably difficult situations, it's like I don't know. I would I would I would want her to have some comfort, and I think. <laughs> I think she would want that for me too. I, you know, so there's something that's really sweet and romantic about this, but then there's also this part of me that's like, I don't know, like would, would, would Lois want that? Would he want that for her? My perspective has changed, but before I share how it's changed, what, what's your take on that? I, 
I think you have to throw that out the window once you get to thousand year war in Asgard. Like this is this is a fable. Like you're right. I, I mm-hmm. think he'd absolutely want her to move on and for uh, she would want him to be able to move on. But I think that's the point of the story is, is you're, you know, you're trapped in this situation where you don't know that you don't know that something won't happen. And it, it kind of speaks to who Clark is because, you know, I, I don't like this interpretation, but this idea that his, his crest means hope, right? Clark is the ultimate beacon of hope. Like even after a thousand years, part of him is thinking, I may get to go home. You know, this is the realm of gods. Time is just another tool in the box to them. I may be able to go home. And if I can remember what kissing Diana is like, I may not be able to be with Lois 100%. So I'd rather not risk that. So part of me was like, yeah, this makes sense because it's it's a one-issue story. It's 20, 22 pages. And this is about Clark, the, the god of hope, for lack of a better term, going through this thing and saying, no, no, I, I had it. And if I can't have it again, I don't want anything. And if anything, I just feel bad for Diana because I, I don't know what her continuity was like at this point. But, you know, clearly if Steve Trevor dies of old age or is killed in battle or something like please go on go go enjoy yourself so i I feel kind of bad that her and thor never uh, started a new lineage well listen if you follow wonder woman 1984 it's steve trevor or nobody anyway that's a different episode which maybe i'll do at some point that is a that is a different episode i might i might do that at some point anyway all right you you said that you there was a word you used that i think was what unlocked this for me and aspects of this entire run for me, this aspirational. And you see that at play here. I think this is very aspirational that, you know, for a thousand years, he would, you know, might be tempted, but he would never act on it. It's only Lois. And again, very sweet, very romantic, very powerful. And you also see this play out, and I know I'm jumping ahead, but you see this play out in Superman, Clark's absolute refusal to kill in any circumstance, whether it's Manchester Black and the rest of the elite in 775, whether it's, again, Manchester Black in ending battle when, as far as Clark knows, Black has killed Lois, or whether it's at the conclusion of the quote-unquote Zod, because it's not the real Zod, but it's a Zod. I uh, call him Zed. I like Zed. I like that. That works. And then, and uh, as a fellow Power Ranger fan, I think that, uh, that, that that definitely works for us, right, Lord Zed? Oh, not a not a Power Ranger guy. Sorry. Oh, I thought okay. All right, we'll circle back to that off mic. <laughs> but, um, or you know, at the conclusion of that arc where he refuses to kill Zod and and seemingly kills Zod, uh, it, it appears that he snaps his neck, and then of course we find out that he didn't. Well, they weren't in a train station. If they were in a train station, all bets would have been off. You know, of course I knew this would come up, and and of course I thought of the Snyder movies when I, especially at especially at that scene with the the the, the image of of Superman seemingly snapping Zod's neck and then not. I, you know, I, again, I think though it goes back to this idea of being aspirational, and and you know we can debate this all the time, and we've had these discussions, you know, especially when we talk about the Snyder movies where. I, and I think, I, you know, again, I think this idea of perspective, it depends on what you're looking for. I think I like, I really liked, I loved the fact that Snyder gave us a Superman in quote unquote, the real world. And I think that it played out this, his story played out the way that it probably would, uh, if, if this actually happened. And especially when we're talking about killing, cause you know, this has come up a bunch on the show. You know, we, we did our crisis till death event. We talked about Superman executing 
the Kryptonian criminals in the pocket universe at the end of Burns run. And that gets referenced repeatedly in Kelly's uh, Zod arc as well. Uh, and, and of course, anytime that we talk about the Snyder movies and the killing of, of Zod, it came up when we talked about Superman 2 and how uh, Superman is exceedingly cavalier as the Kryptonian criminals appear to fall to their deaths in the fortress, powerless. And yes, I know there's a deleted scene where they're carted off by the Arctic police, but it's not in the movie. So we can only go based on what is actually in the proper movie. So there are like there are various instances of this. It's like, you know, would he kill under what circumstances? What what impact you know would it have? And I know I'm taking us on a little tangent, but it's the last episode of the year. Yeah, bear with me. This was me. inevitable. It was this was going to happen. This is inevitable. <laughs> I think one of the things that one of the things that this might come down to for people is again this idea of perspective, where it's great to say Superman will always find a way, but we'll we'll always find a way to what to not kill. If that's that's the if that's the argument, okay, that's one thing. Like he'll always find he'll never kill. He'll always find a way to rise above it. Fine. I guess what I sort of ascribe to, and what I think is more realistic and more interesting for me on this Superman fan journey, is that you know he'll always find a way to save people and to win the day, and it is exceedingly rare, and he won't do it in a cavalier way. But there might be an instance where killing is the only way to save the day. And I, I think that, you know, at least for me, like when I look at the Snyder movies and when I hear people's arguments about it, it's like, wow, he would have flown him up into this in outer space. It's like, all right. I mean, I, I think the way the scene was depicted, I don't know that that was really an option. And I think the intent of it was to show like he didn't have another option and he was willing. I guess that's the thing. It's like he was willing to do that. It was so important to him to save these people that he was willing to kill the last link. And that's the thing. And that's why Superman 2 bugs me so much because he's so flip about it. He's smiling as these people are falling to their deaths. Whereas, you know, in, in Man of Steel, I mean, that's, you know, that's an act of love. That's an act of love for the human race. And he feels it. No, it's not. I Stop think it, it is. I think it is. I Honestly, Look, man. My main problem with Man of Steel, and I'm so <laughs> tired of talking about this movie, is that when you write a story featuring Superman, if you decide that the character has to be put into a position where he has to kill, you stopped writing Superman. I'm sorry. Like, John Byrne may have told a very interesting story where he had a murder of the three criminals, but the the situation was very different from that movie, and there were long-standing repercussions. In fact, I would say up until the, the character got rebooted, he was still haunted by that decision. It wasn't a decision he made lightly. The movie was an origin story, and I really do feel like all the writers and Zack Snyder went into that film specifically saying, we want to show why in other stories Superman doesn't kill. And we're going to do that by having him see firsthand how terrible killing is. I've never killed someone. You've never killed someone. We know it's a bad thing to do. Like, again, my fault isn't on the Clark Kent of the DCEU. It's on the people who chose to tell that story. It's it's what I was saying before. Is like some stories take root. Like uh, the whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow is a great example of this because the climax of that story is built around the situation we're talking about. Mix, Mr. Mix, God, for lack of a better term, has threatened to destroy the entire world. And he takes it upon himself to kill this thing and none of us are going to fault and we're going to say yeah of course you saved your wife you saved your friends you saved the world like why is that a bad thing and he is so distraught that he takes away his powers now it actually ends up giving him a happier ending but for him there's still that price that's a 
better story than what you're describing. And I know I'm not going to win you over, but it's this idea of like, you can't view an act of violence, an act of murder as one, you know, the same as an act of love. Like if you do that, then it's like, wait, what do you think is at stake here? It's like, you don't need to do something bad to know it's a bad thing to do. Like, I don't think Man of Steel is a good movie. Some people do. That's great. But I'm also not a big Superman fan. You're a way bigger Superman fan than I am. So maybe I'm just missing something. Well, I mean, you know, there are a couple of things here. I mean, you know, when I say an act of love, it's like, no, I've not killed someone. But if someone broke into my house and meant to do harm to my family and I protected them, that's an act of love to me. So, and yes, no, he didn't know the people in that train station, but he was still choosing to put the world he had adopted over the world he was he was born to. Um, but yeah, I mean, there there are a few aspects here. And the argument that you're making is one that I made for many years. I mean, for a long time after Man of Steel, my I felt like, I understood why he made the decision he did in that moment. I wish that the movie didn't put him in that position. I said that for years. Again, I think my perspective has shifted a little bit where it's like, I appreciate that the overall story that Snyder was, was going for, you know, you bring up an interesting point though, about the repercussions of this. And I'm kind of of two minds on this. Cause on the one hand, even to this day, yeah, I do think there would have been some value in one follow-up scene <laughs> in that movie or a subsequent movie where he at least articulates the lesson that he learned from that, right? And the movies don't give us that. And I I, I don't, you know, I think they, maybe they should have. Alternatively, and now I guess this is where, and again, I don't, you know, I'm not looking to alienate people here, but I guess I sort of feel like, well, was his lesson that, and Henry Cavill literally just gave an interview where his interpretation is that, you know, that, that cry that he gives, right? Like he was saying he wouldn't, this is something he wouldn't do again. Like he's learned that lesson, right? That's, I guess, at least from his perspective, that was the intent. But I guess the larger question is like, well, is Clark's takeaway in that moment that he will never kill again under any circumstances? I don't, I mean, to be honest, it's like for me as this Superman fan, it's like, I don't know that I need that to be his takeaway. I think it's something that clearly in that moment was not an easy decision and it was something that he felt and you don't get the sense that, oh, he's going to go around snapping necks all the time. Of course not. And I wouldn't want him to as a Superman fan, but I guess it's like if he were placed in a similarly impossible situation and that were the only way, that were the way to save the day, I don't know. I feel... I would be okay if he, again, I'm not saying I necessarily need to see that. We've seen it play out on screen. I don't need that. We need that again. Um, but so, so again, I don't, I don't know that the lesson for me at least needs to be like, I'll never kill under any circumstances. Um, but again, at least it was something that he felt. I thought the way it came across in Superman two was, uh, you know, and some people seem to take issue with that. Not nearly as much as in Man of Steel. Cause I know Man of Steel was very visceral and it was, you know, snapping a neck was different than laughing as people fall to their deaths. But yeah, never, nevertheless. <laughs> and then the last thing I'll say is, this, of course, this came up when we talked about the John Byrne run with the execution of the criminals. I do agree with you. I mean, they did, they, they earned that with the story that followed. When you see the psychological fallout, that literally continues to play out in Kelly's stories here. So I think that was an instance where, you know, he killed, but they, they made a count and they explored a lot from it and it changed the character. I, I did like that, but you know, to be honest, it's like, as far as the act of killing itself, you know, the heat of the moment defense of others is the lawyer in me, the heat of the moment defense of others in Man of Steel versus the, you know, the cold execution of now powerless villains on this dead universe. 
I don't know. I have a harder time with that than I do with the train station scene. Um, but again, I, I believe me, look, I get your perspective. And for anyone listening to this, if you feel the way Mike does, I get it. I mean, I, and I felt that way. That's the thing. I've been on the other side of it. Like I do get it. Um, I've taken us a bit astray, but I want to bring us back here because, <laughs> you know what, though, it's the last episode of the year and I feel like it's fitting, right? Because in almost every episode, Snyder comes up, which that, you know, look, that's the thing. There's so much to discuss and that's a gift. As a podcaster, that's a gift. So I enjoy his movies in and of themselves, but I enjoy the fact that they give us fodder for all these discussions and they give... You know, I don't know. I guess like added added uh, context. You know, for for all these other things we're talking about. Anyway, I, is, I just want to go on record. I don't know if I've ever said this in a previous episode. But <laughs> Batman versus Superman is the only movie I have ever walked out of. I was so angry at that film that I had I had to get up and leave. I eventually had to come back because I didn't drive to the theater. But I I had to get up and leave. I was so angry, and I have not had to do that at any other movie. Uh, since or before then, it was just in that moment, I was so angry. I didn't want to be in that chair anymore. I, I got up and left. Well, I'm sorry. To, I am sorry to hear that. Uh, That's not your fault. You know, anyway, what, so the, the, what I was getting to, and I think this, this is a long walk, but hopefully it's worthwhile. <laughs> you know, Kelly shows us numerous instances where Superman chooses not to kill. Um, even in situations where, if you looked at it from your own perspective or even from the perspective of Superman, it's like he would, he would be justified in doing it. Just as he would be justified in spending the night with Diana after a thousand years before their battle where they, their final battle where they could die. But I appreciate, and that, that, that's the thing, I appreciate this aspirational version of the character. I mean, I'm not saying that I need the character to play out realistically all the time i i think maybe in the movies i i respond to that a little bit more because again it's you know we're seeing it play out in live action there's more realism there i don't know um but at least in, in the comic book world like i'm a little bit more okay with this this more idealized aspirational version but and i but more than anything else i appreciate what kelly was going for because it's very it's a very consistent depiction you know, throughout. And, and so I, so I really do appreciate that this, this aspirational Superman who, you know, won't, um, you know, won't, won't cheat on Lois, even though I don't think he would even call it cheating at that point. Um, and, and wouldn't kill either, no matter, no matter what, no matter how much he's pushed in all of these scenarios. So I, I think that's, that's at the heart of this Kelly version. I, I, I think it's very, um, I think it's a very important, aspect of the character of Superman. And I don't think it gets talked about a lot, but uh, Mark Wade does a great version of it in Kingdom Come where it's just Superman doesn't want to kill. Like, like there's this idea of like, well, that's the punishment. And it's like, yeah, but he doesn't, he doesn't want to do it. Like we assume because he's the strongest and because it would be so easy for him that it would be something that maybe he could live with, especially in the, uh, excuse me, especially in the circumstances you're describing with Manchester Black, who is specifically created by Kelly to be one of Superman's vilest villains and who is probably the, the breakout star of this run. I mean, he was recently in the Supergirl show. He's in a comic right now, uh, the Superman and the authority, uh, he's been in an animated movie. Like he, he has made an impact. He is part of the rogues gallery. Um, but the, it always comes back to this idea of like, well, yeah, okay. Superman could kill. He could probably get away with it. Probably no one would fault him. 
but he doesn't want to. Like that is a very important part of his character. Um, and you know, across the street, it's something he shares with Spider-Man, where they're always like, "Well, why don't you just kill the bad guy and get over it?" He's like, "Well, I, I don't want to. That would be terrible. That you know, that would mean he won, and I, I wouldn't get up. Um, I wouldn't get out of bed the next day." And you know, Spider-Man very famously accidentally killed Gwen Stacy, uh, his Lana, for lack of a better term, and he is still living with that guilt. You know, it still drives him to this day. It's it's almost as important to him as his origin, and. While I don't love the scene where Byrne had him, and you're right, it is execution of those villains, it's it's like he deals with the repercussions and he said, I want to do something that's never been shown before, let me follow it through. And I feel like it's the same way with Kelly, where it's like, well, yeah, but I want to show you why he doesn't want to kill and why that makes sense for him, because it is remarkably consistent. Like Superman will go to these ridiculous bounds not just because like he wants to take the moral high ground to show you, you know, he's not Homelander. He doesn't want to just show you that he couldn't choose not to. He really doesn't want to like he was taught by John and, and Martha and all the other wonderful people in his life that it's like, dude, you, you shouldn't want that. That's, that's what, uh, you know, people you don't want to be like. And then Clark just looks at it and says, well, I have more resources than everyone else and I can find a better way. I mean, even, even with Manchester, you know, we keep darting around the issue, but the, the great throwdown on Jupiter that he has with Manchester, he takes him out almost immediately, you know, and, it, and it's a thing you've seen in, in a hundred other stories where it's like, there's nothing preventing Superman from popping Lex Luthor's head like a grape. That's not the point of the story. The point is, how does the strongest man who's ever lived deal with the smartest man who's ever lived? You know, these characters are myths. Uh, and that's that's just what I love about Kelly is, is he gets that and he moves on to the next thing. He's like, oh, great. I didn't create Superman. But I understand uh, at least the version that's going to work for me, and I'm going to move on. And that's why, for me, his stories land, because he's not trying to sell himself on the character of Superman. He's saying, no, I know what makes this character tick. Let's show him doing cool stuff with great artists, and uh, you know, hopefully he'll come back for the next issue. Well, so on that note of 775, uh, so, I mean, I think I have my answer. Did, did it hold up for you, and did you find it as impactful upon reread as, as you have all these years? Uh, yes, absolutely. I, I remember getting that on the stands when it came out. It was, it was a huge deal. Everyone was talking about it at the store. It was one of those milestone issues I probably would have picked up even if it didn't have all this heat around it. I have read it many times. Um, I love it. I, I do not have a bad thing to say about it. And it's just, uh, I, I think it really holds up. I, I love the fact that you can give that to anyone because everyone at least has some version of superman in their head and you can hand them this comic that's what 20 years old at this point and they'll say oh yeah cool that's a story that i get and that still holds up so i just yeah i it, it's perfect <laughs> it really is yeah well you know it's funny on that note you know again these comics are 20 years old and overall they i mean they i feel like they do hold up very well i mean there are a few references to pagers you know but sure. other than that you know i mean i think they still work and you know it's really funny and I, I know I've mentioned this elsewhere too, but you know, I think like in that episode with, uh, I keep saying episode, I've, I've done this constantly, uh, issue with, uh, with, with Wonder Woman where, you know, uh, Lois is teasing him about who would Superman marry. And I think, you know, she throws out Jennifer Lopez and it's like, you know what? Kudos to JLo <laughs> that she's like, would still be in this conversation if it were happening now. So there are things that like, eh, you know, they still play, but, uh, yeah, as far as 775, I, I've always been a fan. I mean, I guess I, I guess it didn't make, 
and I don't say this, there was nothing that I ever disliked about it. It was never that it didn't work for me, but it didn't, I guess it never made quite as much as an impression on me as it did on others, but I, I couldn't really tell you why. And it was, was nothing that I would critique about it. I really enjoyed it. It just didn't I know land. exactly why. why. I know exactly why it didn't land for you. I, I know exactly why. Right. And I know why I love it and why you don't love it as much as me because you already like the character. Like when you uh. picked up 775, you were a committed Superman fan and you probably got to the end of it and you were like, oh, that makes sense. He found another way. I came from it from the other perspective. One of my favorite comics of all time, certainly at the time 775 originally came out, was the authority. Um, and I may not have been picking up every issue of the Joe Kelly run, but I can tell you I was getting every issue of that and whatever else uh, Warren Ellis was writing at the time. So I came to it from the other side. I, I came to it of like, you know, ridiculous teenager. And it's like, oh yeah, Superman is not interesting and there's nothing good here. And there's a reason I don't like this character. And this authority team is going to show him what for. And then you get to the end and you're like, oh, that's why Superman is still being published decade after decade after decade. And everyone knows who he is. Whereas, you know, the authority didn't even really survive the two thousands. I mean, they're around here in name only, but you know, they're, they're, they're a JLo reference. You know, you had to have been there, uh, whereas Superman is still around. We're still talking about that issue. So for me, it was a transformative experience because it was like, it was like, oh, this is why everyone likes him. This is why he's still around. This is this is the narrative potential of this character. And it, it surprised me at the time. And every time I go back to it, I'm like, oh, this is how you tell a, a mature superhero story. And I just I just love it. I was 90% sure that you were going to say I didn't like it because he didn't snap Manchester Black's neck. <laughs> <laughs> Again, no subway station. You got to have a subway station. Uh, well, Jupiter is the subway station of outer space. Oh, uh, it's true. It's true. It's true. <laughs> you know, I I think I <laughs> I think I appreciated it more now. I, I think that's fair to say. And, you know, I, I guess a couple of things that really, really did stand out to me one was, you know, the the quote unquote fear, you know, that that he expresses to Lois and, you know, as he's wrestling with this and it's not that he's afraid he's going to be defeated, but it's like, what might he be forced to do? Or, or even just this bigger picture that what he stands for is being challenged. And, you know, we get the sound bites throughout the, throughout the issue of, you know, uh, people around the world, like, you know, some on the side of Superman, but a lot who are like, yeah, the elite have it the right way. It's like they, you know, you should be more punishing. You should, you know, end these threats permanently. And, and that's such a stark contrast to everything that Superman has been. And, you know, again, and this has come up in so many stories. It's always shocking to me how quickly the people are to turn on him. You know, they're like story after story. It's like for everything this guy does for them, so quick. Lex Luthor won the popular vote, my friend. He won the popular vote. Never forget, Clark and John are standing in Pete's Hall. They're eating his food and they're saying, man, I, I hope my best friend doesn't win this election. Lex won fair and square. Never underestimate the people. Yeah, uh, well said. And, you know, look, we've seen plenty of things in the real world that are that make you feel like, yeah, this could happen. That's what I'm saying. But so that stood out to me. And then, uh, again, and I'm not breaking any new ground here, but the, you know, Superman is absolutely badass in the way he dismantles the team while still retaining the core of who he is, right? And, of course, he makes Manchester think that he's killed the rest of the team and that he's lobotomized Manchester. But, of course, he's merely incapacitated them and given Manchester the equivalent of a concussion. 
but just this idea that it's like I'm showing you what I could do and I'm choosing not to do it and that's a stronger choice and he breaks Manchester Black the guy's got tears in his eyes um, and even you know it's funny because like throughout the story Manchester's like well this is what you need to do like you need to be like us and when Superman seemingly is like him he's like you, but you're Superman you, even the villain who's pushing him in this direction doesn't expect him to go there doesn't want him to go there uh, it, it is a great story and you hit the nail on the head because it is it is utterly self-contained and I think that's I mean again they'll use Manchester later but in and of itself like you can read that story and you don't need to know what was going on in the Superman books at the time and you know this was an anniversary issue 775 so those usually they make a little more evergreen but I think that was a perfect choice and uh, again it's not a shock to me that it shows up on all of those lists of of top Superman stories it it really held up great and again I think I definitely enjoyed it more now than I did before yeah, it's it's the little things too. You know, you know, for for people who aren't familiar with it, the general story is there's a team that is like the Authority, and they are they are responding to Superman. You know, Superman does things a certain way, and then the world continues to spin, and they come out of nowhere, and they have the the crazy, not really well defined or at least not well understood power set that was popular at the time. You know, I don't know what cold casts powers are, but I know he's powerful. I don't know what the hat can do, but I know he does a lot. Stuff like that. That was very popular at the time. Um, and, and, you know, Superman ultimately takes them down and, and, and not because they attack him directly, but because he's like, oh, okay, here you go. You have the world stage. What are you going to do with it? And the answer is nothing because you haven't thought this through. Um, but, you know, reading it again this time, it was the little things that really struck me. Um, one is there's, you know, there's a through line for uh, Kelly's entire run where there are these two women walking their dogs. And I don't know if they're ever given names, but one of their dog's name is Poopsie. And uh, they show up in, I don't know, three or four issues sporadically. You, you wouldn't know them. You don't need to recognize them. But in that issue, they're they're interviewed as, as the women on the street. And one of them says, you know, was the Joker ever punished for his hyena eating Poopsie? And the woman just goes, no, he had diplomatic immunity. And for those of you who aren't aware, that was a real story. Like, that's something that DC really put out. So I love the fact that it's like, yeah, if I woke up and a guy with a thousand body count had diplomatic immunity from a country we didn't have good relations with anyway, and you told me a pissed off Brit with purple hair like lobotomized him, I'd be like, yeah, okay, good. I'm sleeping better tonight. Um, and then something else, too, uh, we're, we haven't mentioned it because we're not covering it today, but the elite were very popular, and they actually get a, a spinoff series where they get kind of a uh, to become the Justice League's Black Ops team. Um, and one of the things I like about that, and it's referenced later in this run, is that Coldcast actually comes around to Superman's way of thinking. Uh, there's this great scene later on. It's very quick, uh, but it's it's reminiscent of the major disaster scene where basically uh, Lex and Clark have their backs against the wall, and Lex is like, I will give everyone in this prison a pardon if you help us fight the enemy. And at the end of the day, you know, Coldcast is imprisoned with the rest of them and he does help them. And when Lex goes up to him and says, well, you know, I can't give you a pardon. You did terrible things because I'm not here for that. He goes, well, what were you here for? Well, Superman asked for help. Regardless of all the terrible things I did to him, he stood up and he said, you can make a difference. You can help stop this guy and save people. No one ever had done that to me before, so I want to do a good thing. And then later on, just like Major Disaster, he ends up being a Justice Leaguer. So it's this idea that you know Superman doesn't just put you in jail. 
if there's a possibility of turning things around, he's going to do it. And Kelly introduced a character where he could show that entire arc, and and I love it. I, I wish that character would come back. I love that too, and I I think what Colcast specifically says he's like Superman treated us like men, so we acted like men. And yeah, yeah I mean, I, I I agree. I think that's a perfect echo of the the gift slash choice issue where you know there there is this other way and he will reach out and offer a chance and and again i think what's so effective about all of this is that it's we all always talk about the hope that superman can inspire but it's like well when you have an opportunity to actually show that and you know this came up when we talked about reign of the superman and steel and like ken marion and i both big steel fans and you know we kind of came to in that episode we were talking about it is like well Steel represents sort of this hope that Superman can inspire, like fully realized, right? Like this was someone so inspired by the example of Superman that he picks up the hammer and he tries to carry on when Superman's not there. Like it's a very, it's a very powerful thing. Let's take a quick commercial break. And then while we're talking Manchester Black, I want to get into ending battle and my, the scene that Uh, made the whole story for me. Uh, So we'll take a quick commercial break and then we will get into ending battle. So we will be right back. Shadadigans is a weekly podcast by dads sharing their fairly new dad experiences and also just talking about whatever. Listen, relate, and laugh. I was a guest on episode 90 and it was a blast. One of the hosts is a multiple guest of this show, Justin DeVoe. To follow Justin's fitness and cosplay journey, follow him on Instagram at Lobo. And if you're interested in starting or continuing your own fitness journey, check out Iron and Honor on Instagram. The Hive Comics and Games is an oasis of nerd fun and events in the heart of Odessa, Texas. Whether it's comic book superhero stories or role-playing in a dungeon, The Hive is where to be. Come tap your mana and face off against the top Magic the Gathering players in West Texas. Hive carries a majority of new comic titles each Wednesday, and has all of your favorite titles in their back issue section. Follow them on Facebook at The Hive Comics and on Instagram at The Hive Comic Shop. Film lovers and filmmakers should check out this family of film festivals. Brightside Tavern in Jersey City, Hang On To Your Shorts in Asbury Park, Point Lookout on Long Island, and In The Cut in Bloomfield, New Jersey. Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals generally, can be found at filmfreeway.com. Also, be sure to listen to the Hang On To Your Shorts and Cullen On Film podcasts available via a shared universe network. And we're back. Thank you to all of our sponsors and to all of our patrons as well. And if you have not yet joined the Anthony Desiato Patreon page, I hope you will. There are a ton of bonus episodes that are available at the $1 level and additional perks as you make your way through the higher levels. And I did this once before, but I'm just going to make this an ongoing thing, a money back guarantee. If you sign up for a month and you don't like the offerings or you change your mind, whatever, reach out and I'll happily give you a refund for that month. If you sign up and you forget to cancel it and you get charged again, reach out to me. I'll give you a refund. Uh, I really appreciate everyone who has signed up. It enables me to primarily host all of the uh the media files online for this episode for the the show uh and to deliver it to you via your podcast platform of choice so that's one of the the main costs associated with doing the show as well as equipment and research material in terms of comics and uh movies so all the stuff that we're talking about 
that's what really the the patron support goes to. So thank you to everyone who has done it. And for anyone who hasn't, um, I, I hope you'll check it out. I know there are a million things to sign up for and uh, I, I fully appreciate that. So of course there's no pressure, uh, but thank you to, to those who have. All right, ending battle. Again, we're jumping around a little bit, but since we were talking Manchester Black, so Ending Battle was this eight-part crossover across the four Superman titles. And so for Kelly in particular, he wrote the two chapters of Action Comics. So he wrote parts four and, and part eight. And in this story, uh, an assortment of C and D list villains begin targeting people in Clark Kent's life. So his parents and his co-workers at the Daily Planet and Lois and and his uh, dentist and optometrist <laughs> and high school coach. Uh, you're shaking your head. I, I, so maybe I guess I know my answer. Did. Was that too silly for you? Was that too far? Yeah, I, I checked out. I, I, I've read that story a bunch of times. I, I really like when all the Marvel villains show up for no reason. I love the stuff with Manchester Black. But there's one point where the bug-eyed bandit is going after Clark's accountant. And I'm just like, who cares? What is this? What, what is this for? Like, which of the four of you, what editor came up with this? Like, I, I thought that there was such a, a better way to do this that was, like, glossed over. Like, they did that great scene where the Kent farm was attacked. That could have been a whole issue. Like, this idea that Clark's worst fear is waking up and not being able to reach his parents for a natural disaster or supervillain attack or something else. And I just felt like, why are you wasting time on this little stuff to pad out this story? Like you could have really focused on the big things like Lois, the planet, something else. And it was just like, at one point he references like his butcher and then there's the group of people in the steelworks. And I was just like, this is why this stuff is so hard to give to people sometimes. <laughs> I, I get that. I don't, uh, this is not a hill I will die on. Uh, I, I won't defend this with the passion that I'll defend the train station scene from Man of Steel. I, I didn't bother me as much. I think you were just sensitive because you are an accountant and the idea that they were going That's after. True. Yeah, I, I think that rubbed you the wrong way. But yeah, I, you know, it's it's funny, right? Because you think of all the Superman stories there have been, in comics in particular, but I can't think of a ton where the villain knows figures out his identity and targets him in that way. I mean, the the big thing that comes to mind, and we'll cover this on the show in the future, is Kenny Braverman, conduit from the mid-90s in the Superman titles, a uh, former classmate of Clark's who gets these kryptonite powers and, and, and targets Superman through Clark specifically. And Clark gives up his, his Clark Kent identity. That's called the death of Clark Kent storyline. Uh, so you don't get a ton of, I feel like that story was actually, and I haven't read it in a while, maybe I'll feel differently, but that story I felt like was more menacing and unnerving. This one, I think quickly does become comical, almost borderline comical. Uh, again, when you see, you know, how many layers removed, you know, they're, they're going to get to him. And also, yeah, again, I think your mileage will vary. You might be excited to see some of these villains, but you know, they're not, they're certainly not, a, for the most part, a memorable bunch. So it, I think a lot of it does start to kind of feel a bit a bit forgettable. But my hands down, my favorite scene in this, because ultimately we find out that Manchester Black is, is behind all of this, right? But first, before Superman thinks of him, he goes to Lex, to President Lex, right? And we know 
at this point, because this was established in some of Jeff Loeb's final issues on the Superman title, that at this point in time, President Lex knows that Clark is Superman. Someone came to him with satellite photos that showed the rocket coming and landing in Kansas. He knows Clark is Superman. And, you know, it's funny because I talked about this when we covered the Loeb Kelly era and when I covered the Superman Batman run. And I complained in that episode, both the multiple episodes, that like they never really did much with Lex knowing Clark's secret. Ending battle doesn't completely change that, but they do deal with it. And it leads to my favorite scene where Superman confronts Lex and he has to kind of dance around it. He's like, you know, don't you? Right? You can't say too much because in case Lex doesn't know, then he'll just give it away. He's like, you know, don't you? And he's like, yes, Clark. And they have this exchange. And, you know, Mike, for this whole year on the podcast, I brought this up numerous times that I think there's a version of the story that works and that would be gripping where Lex knows that Clark is Superman, but he doesn't act on it. Just like we see in this scene where he's like, I've, Lex says, I've loved like three things in my life, myself, first and foremost, my daughter, even if you don't believe me, and, and then he unveils a statue of Lois. And he's like, I don't want to hurt her. And so regardless of what, whether you go with that or whether you say he doesn't want to, he won't out Clark because they have this history from Smallville, however you want to play it, right? I think there are reasons that could account for why, you know, the, Lex would keep this secret. And for this one glorious scene, I got that. And it was great because I brought this up numerous times on the show. I brought this up when I had Mark Wade on. I brought it up with other, everyone I talked to, there might've been one person who kind of backed me, but almost everyone has been like, nah, I don't think that would really work ending battle i love that scene it was short-lived yeah. but i loved it while it while it lasted <laughs> i i love that scene as well i love that they talk as equals i love that he's sitting there smoking a cigar talking about hey i built this uh lex island because i know you had a fortress and i just wanted to show you i could do it i'm gonna blow it up when this is done i like seeing lex <laughs> as a confident human being uh and not a caricature uh even though there are many stories where a caricature works all-star superman comes to mind but uh i i love that scene i'm with you i i, I it's one of my favorite lex and clark scenes um I, I can go either way. I don't really have strong opinions. I, I think, again, Lex's main gimmick is that he is the smartest man in the world. Uh, there's been some great stories where he's presented with irrefutable evidence that Clark and Superman are the same, but he can't, his, his hubris, his arrogance won't allow him to accept that, which I buy as well. But that goes more in, into the caricature area. I, I like this because they were just two equals and they were just sitting there and they were like, I can't hurt that woman. I still love her and she loves you. And that means I can't kill you. And I think that would have been a really interesting dynamic because at the time he was still the president and it's, it almost would have been interesting for that scene to end with Superman saying, Hey, you know what? Maybe I could have dealt with this by just being honest with you in the beginning, which of course goes back to our Smallville show. You know, why just, just tell him, tell him who you are, hug him. Um, but then Manchester Black could have hurt him even more by doing what he does, which is taking the knowledge away and, and almost hurting him in a worse way. Um, so I'm with you. I, I love that. Again, I, I think Kelly knows these characters before he even writes one word of dialogue. But but I want to go back a little bit. Uh, you said something about an attack on Clark that's separate from Superman. Um, there's a great issue in the Grant Morrison Action Comics run from a few years after this where something similar happens. But in that continuity, he's not married to Lois. Ma, Ma and Pa have passed away. So 
Clark actually abandons it and he comes up with a new identity of Johnny Clark. He becomes a firefighter and he moves on. And it's not until people point out like, Hey, that's not a good way to look at things. Like you, you have to form human relationships if you're going to make the Superman thing work. So I, I agree with you. I think there's some great stories there. And then to, to go back to what you were saying about the villains fighting the more minor characters, um, the way I read that this time, and again, not the first time I've read this is almost Manchester, messing with him because again the first time you read it you don't know that the world's most powerful most malicious telepath is making these villains do this but reading it again knowing that that's the case it's almost funny because you don't want to start with the heart you want to start at the fringes like why is i don't the the locksmith or whatever his name is why is he attacking my dentist well because manchester black wants to annoy you and he wants to make you not see the bigger picture and then by the time we get to your parents and your wife and your job which is your livelihood uh you know you're finally seeing the bigger picture so there there is something to be said of the humor in that which again is something i love i also i mean i i don't disagree with that but i also feel like there is the, the other part that i think is valuable about it is you not seen something like that before, right? Where you're, and I think this would have played more had we had any connection to any of these other minor characters. I think absent that, it does play more for humor, which is fine. But, you know, like I mentioned, one of the, you know, my favorite issues from the Kelly run uh, with the newspaper vendor going missing. It's like, I don't know, if that character had been established previously and then he was one of the characters who went, you know, like something like that where you had more of that connection. Um, but I did appreciate it at least for, uh, again, for doing something different. And even though we didn't know the characters, it was also saying like, hey, like there are all these other people in Lois and Clark's lives. We, we might not have met them as readers. <laughs> we don't know their names or anything until this moment. But it's like, yeah, there's a fully formed world around them. And these are the, you know, p- professionals who help them get <laughs> through their, uh, through their daily lives. Uh, and oh, I <clears throat> mentioning Smallville. And again, I promise this will be a quick uh, a quick tangent, but uh, the creators of the show recently did an interview with Krypton Site for the 20th anniversary of the pilot. And they finally talked about what they had. So Al Goff and Miles Miller, they left at the end of season seven, right? And of course the show ran for 10 years. Um, but they talked about what their original plans were had they stayed on the show to its conclusion. I don't know if, did you come across this, Mike? No, no. So you'll, I know you, as a Smallville fan, and especially as a fan of President Lex, you'll appreciate this. Their idea for the series finale was for Clark Kent, the reporter, interviewing Lex, President Lex. That would have been the framing device. And then we would have had our flashbacks to show how we got to that point. But that would have been the framing device that Clark is going to interview Lex. Uh, I don't know how they would have played it in terms of Lex knowing or not knowing that Clark is Superman. That I don't know. Uh, but that would have been cool to see. I think that was a, that was a pretty, uh, that was a solid idea. And I think that would have worked well for the finale, but nevertheless, uh, anyway, as far as, uh, as ending battle and Lex, you know, I had read this before I read this when it was coming out, but to be honest, I don't think I ever revisited it in all these years since. So that's why I was, again, I had completely forgotten that, Superman and Lex had this confrontation about Lex knowing the secret, completely forgot that, and also completely forgot that Manchester Black takes it away at the end of the story. And then in the Zod storyline, Lex acknowledges to Clark that, (laughs) to Superman, that he remembers knowing the secret and now doesn't know the secret. And that, you know, that adds a whole other layer to it. 
Uh, so I, again, I had completely forgotten about it. And I, you know, kudos, and this wasn't just Kelly's story, obviously, but kudos to Kelly and the others. Because again, that was one of the things that kind of bugged me after finishing the Loeb stuff. And it's because, you know, we go from, you know, to Superman, Batman, the, the first arc of that, where, you know, the president-elect stuff is done and that seems to kind of be it. So I appreciate that at least they played around with it a little bit here. And and the ending battle story is available. They did collect that in trade and that is on the app. Um, again, I don't want to oversell this too much, but I really, I just love that. It was such a, it was so short lived, but I love that dynamic between Superman and Lex. Um, was there anything else from that story that, uh, I know we talked about, you know, Superman refusing to kill uh, Manchester, but anything else that you wanted to talk about from ending battle? Yeah. I mean, for anyone who's, who's not familiar with the story, if you don't want to read all eight parts, read, uh, read the two Kelly issues because the, they have this great Lex scene and then they really get to the, the heart of the, the rivalry with Manchester and it's, it's perfect. I mean, it's just, it's a great story. Um, two, two things that I really like about ending battle in particular, uh, one's a scene written by Jeff Johns where in the midst of all this nonsense, uh, Mr. Mix shows up because it's 90 days. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's a one page gag, but I, I love it and I think about it all the time. Where he's in the Superman is in the middle of fighting a bunch of villains and again trying to save these people without unveiling his secret identity in the whole nine yards. And the imp shows up and he goes, Oh man, it's been a long 90 days. And then Superman turns around, his eyes are red, he's exhausted, he's angry. And he just and the imp just looks at him, cracks a joke, says his own name backwards, and vanishes. It's like a three-panel throwaway gag it's not referenced in the rest of ending battle but i just loved it i just love the idea of even this fifth dimensional imp is gonna is gonna give superman a little bit of a break because he's clearly dealing with something and i thought that was a great way of of really raising the stakes and then the other thing i love about ending battle um my, my favorite scene in the entire book is the very last one um you mentioned earlier how after our worlds at war superman had adopted a black shield as a sign of mourning um which he wears until the end of ending battle where he's confronted Manchester and more to the point he's, he's really confronted his own grief. Like he knows he can't bring back all the people who were lost in the war, but he also understands that tomorrow will come and there's more work to do and, and all this other stuff. So he goes back to his original classic costume and I don't know exactly what month this came out, but the very last page of Ending Battle is him flying for the first time in a while in his classic outfit in front of the Twin Towers. Um, and it's just this very powerful image, you know, knowing what we know today or, or even shortly after that. So I just, uh, I love it. I love that last one. I think that was the, when we used to have wallpapers on our computers, I think I scanned that in and had that in for a while, but uh, I really liked it. That's one of those images where it was like, when someone says Superman to me, that's that's one of the images I think of. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. I love that too. I, I liked the the use of the black after our worlds at war. I thought it was fitting. It wasn't a radical change to the costume, but it just was a little tweak to show where he was. And I liked that now we got to see him move past that. I, I really love that too. And, you know, it's funny because we're talking about ending battle, which is a crossover with the, the Superman titles, but notable during this period. And this is actually kind of why it was... I don't know, slightly easier to separate out this part of the Kelly run was that at this point in time, uh, the books were far more separate than they had been, you know, since we had four Superman titles. And in particular, uh, and I don't have the, I think it was, might be, it might've been Action 785. It's the cover, it's the one with Bizarro on the cover. I might have the issue number wrong, but um, it's the final triangle number Superman comic 
you know, they would bring back the num the triangle numbers for select stories here and there. I think they used it uh, during the new Krypton arc uh, after Infinite Crisis, but, uh, it, you know, it, they have not been utilized the way they were during the true triangle era of the Superman titles. And it was, you know, especially now, and I spoke about my love of the triangle era, it was, it was you know, it really ended without any fanfare. Uh, and it the number four was the last uh, <laughs> triangle number. So they started a year. Like they started a new year with the triangle number. They got four issues in and they were like, all right, that's enough. Uh, but it was, so that's notable. And then again, the books really were, you know, far more independent now moving forward. Again, we had Ending Battle. We had Return to Krypton 2, which again, we're not specifically touching on here. But just to kind of close the loop on what we had talked about uh, almost a year or over a year ago, uh, Loeb and Kelly and the rest of the writers, they had introduced this Silver Age version of Krypton that existed within the Phantom Zone. And what we find out in Return to Krypton 2 is that this was all a fabrication created by Brainiac 13. So just to kind of close the loop on that, uh, while we're not diving deep into that story, that, that was kind of the idea um, there. Uh, but again, the, you know, the books now were, were far more um, independent. Uh, the one other crossover, I think it was the one other crossover, was uh, Lost Hearts. Uh, Lana Lang-centric story, which you and I are going to be discussing in an episode of Digging Deeper, the Patreon uh, companion podcast, so we'll get into that there. I, I want to mention, you know, we talked about 775. You know, K Kelly was on the book so long, he, not only did he write 775, he wrote 800. What were your thoughts on 800? Because, man, I love that. I love that issue. I loved 800. I really did. I, I, I think it's a template for how everyone should do a big milestone issue because... Uh, it had a bunch of different artists, which is kind of a trope at this point, but each one was allowed to do a story about how Superman influenced the, the people who live in the world, but also, you know, basically the readers and the watchers and the viewers and the people at home. And every page was great. And it ends with just my favorite little segment. It's got a beautiful cover. It's one of those things where it's like, this is an anniversary issue that I actually do go back and reread and recommend to people. And uh, I'm very happy that those two great issues are in the primary Superman book so close together because they really do point to the strength of that run. You know, it wasn't short. It wasn't brief. No editor came in and said, Kelly, you're fired. This was like, he got to tell a story over the course of the entire book. And it shows because when it's good, it's amazing. And, you know, it's, it's funny, especially looking at it in the context of 775, where, you know, both stories really do get at the heart of the character. And there are these terrific celebrations. You know, 775 obviously made more of a statement. And I think, Maybe in part that's why it's you know listed you know always as one of the top Superman stories. But eight hundred I feel is very underrated. I I've not really come across articles or, or you know other you know people really talking about it all that often. But it's a beautiful story. You know again sort of the 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 meat of it is you know a retelling of Superman uh, making his debut right leaving Smallville traveling the world. Uh, he gets taken under the wing by this veteran journalist who, you know, kind of shows him the ropes and points him toward that path, which I thought that was an interesting angle. Um, and we see him, you know, trying out a prototype costume where he's, his mask is covered and he realizes that's not the right, not the right path for him. So all that stuff was great. I mean, we've had plenty of tellings of the origin, but it was well told. But really, what, what really struck a chord for me was exactly what you described was, you know, the, those little vignettes of, of people 
you know, people in the world of the comics, but like you said, us, the reader, the audience yeah. for all these years. And, you know, talking about what the character meant, what the character inspires, and, you know, also taking you through the history of the character, right? Because in these vignettes, you see people reading Superman newspaper strips and seeing what's effectively the Fleischer cartoon in a movie theater or watching a documentary about Superman or listening to a radio show about Superman. Uh, so all of the ways that we in the real world over 80 years have experienced the character, you're seeing the, you know, the, the, the people within the pages of the comic talking about that too. Uh, yeah, I, I thought, I mean, I really, I, I really love that issue for anyone who hasn't. And that was collected in the, uh, the Action Comics 80-year hardcover, and of course it's on the app, but that's one, if, if you haven't read that, I, I that's one I would really recommend. I, I really love that one uh, a lot. Uh, I had mentioned, of course, before the, the missing issue, right, the one where uh, Clark's newspaper vendor uh, disappears and... You know, Clark takes it upon himself to, you know, to, to try to track him down and, and Lois, uh, you know, teams up with him and, and leads the investigation. And I think what what I loved about that issue was that, you know, the human interest element, the fact that Clark was out of his element and was really, uh, you know, you know, un uncomfortable and challenged in a way that he normally isn't, right? Because this wasn't something that he could he could hit, you know, like he was trying to get, as Clark, he was trying to get information out of people and he was kind of getting stonewalled and, uh, you know, there, you know, other people around him who didn't even think, you know, this was even that big of a deal. Like people come and go all the time. I think it was even Lois who was like, you know, people <laughs> leave the city all the time. Uh, and, but it just showed his commitment. And, and, but again, the frustration, at one point he gets called away, you know, for a JLA emergency. And it's you, like, you feel the frustration. Like, I just want to try to find this guy, like this one person. And, you know, when you're tasked with, you know, keeping the whole world safe, you know, one person might not seem like much, but for him, that's that's everything. And I, I just thought it was, and unfortunately, you know, it has the sad ending where we find out that um, he had been uh, killed by his bookie when he won big and the bookie couldn't couldn't pay. But uh, I, I love, did that one stand out to you too? Oh, yeah, I, I love that one. The The character's name is, is Valentin Reyes, and, and I, I absolutely love it. As someone who's, who's taken commuter rail for many, many years, uh, that was always a favorite of mine because it's like, yeah, you, you see the person selling newspapers and coffee. You see them every day, and you do get to to, to, to know them. So I, I really, really enjoyed that issue. Um, you know, it's funny, you, you said, uh, Superman is tasked with protecting the, the entire world, but I, I always think of that as, well, that's something that he chose to do because he could, you know, no one ever said, Hey, listen, you have to, you have to, uh, protect the world from itself and from external threats. It's like, no, you, you have to help. And when you extrapolate that out, that's what you get. But it's funny too, because you're right. The main frustration in that story isn't Clark trying to find this guy. Clark trying to explain to everyone else why it's important that he finds this guy. And again, I, I go back to like, Clark just wants to do good. Like to him, there's no difference. It's like, no, I happen to know this guy, but at the end of the day, he's a missing person. And I'm speaking to his daughter. And my favorite scene in the entire issue is when the daughter says, well, I know he's gone. And he's like, well, how? He missed my birthday, period. Full stop. There's no follow-up. It's like, I just, I know that. And Clark's like, oh yeah, that tracks. And then that's it. Like this... I almost feel bad for this bookie because it's like you have the most powerful man in existence bringing all of his weight down on you. You thought this would have been a victimless crime, but you had no idea that he gave Clark Kent his newspaper. And I love that because that's just one of the beautiful things about Superman stories. It's like, of course, he's going to care about a missing person. And of course, he's going to think that every life has value no matter what they or anyone else have done. And I just thought like that's the entire Superman mythology 
in one issue. Like if you had to explain who the character was, you could take away everything else, but you could say he can, he can go to the moon under his own power, but he cares about every single missing person, no matter what. And I love that it was someone Clark was connected to and just the simple act of kindness of Valentin, you know, keeping his newspaper warm and dry, you know, and, and ready for him every day. I, I, yeah, I thought that was, it was a really, it was a really powerful story. I, I, I really appreciated that one. And he also has this a great scene with Batman where he, he you know, he does get some uh, detective advice from, from Batman. And he's like, you know, normally, you know, when an adult male disappears, it's because they want, you know, they want to, but, you know, dig into you know, what, you know, if someone might've been after him or if he had, you know, something he was hiding. And of course that's, you know, the key that, uh, you know, Clark is, is ultimately able to use to unlock this mystery, but it, it was, it was really great. And, you know, speaking of Batman, we do get a bit of closure on an outstanding plot point from the Emperor Joker storyline. Right, so in that storyline, of course, Joker, uh, you know, has, it takes the power of Mixius Pitalik and reshapes the universe in his image. And in that world, he is torturing and killing and reviving Batman over and over and over and over again. And of course, eventually, Superman is able to stop him. But Batman is broken at the end of that story. At the end of Emperor Joker, he's so traumatized by these memories, and so the Spectre transfers those memories from Bruce to Clark, so that Bruce can you know, re resume his normal life. And, you know, that had kind of been out there for a while. And it's in the, I believe it's the Joker's last laugh issue uh, that Kelly wrote the, the tie. I think, it, I think that's the one where uh, Kyle is infected with the Joker toxin, right. And, and is running amok where, you know, Superman finally admits this to Batman and, you know, I don't know, Batman doesn't take it great, but he takes it better than I thought he would. I mean, he fires a few missiles at, at Superman as, as he leaves, but uh, I don't know, just kind of knowing where we're headed with infinite, with the identity crisis, not too far from here. Uh, I felt like he took it better than I would have, <laughs> I would have expected him to. What'd you think? Well, I, I always go back to the fact that with Batman versus Superman, it's like, yeah, people like it when they fight, but they, they're, they're brothers, you know, like they're going to fight and they're going to yell and they're going to do everything else. But at the end of the day, they still go to each other for advice and when they need help and uh, they don't hesitate to help one another. So when, you know, this great secret comes out, he's going to yell, he's going to shoot missiles, he's going to do everything else. But at the end of the day, it's like, this guy did something to help you and he didn't do it because the world needed Batman. He did it because you're his friend. <laughs> and uh, again, I think that very much speaks to, to who Superman is. Actually, it's it's funny. I read that differently. I didn't read it that uh, the Spectre puts the memories in Clark's mind. I thought he put the memories in Joker's mind um, because I thought, well, if the memories were put into Clark's mind, then he would be insane. Uh, and Emperor Joker... And I did not read reread the entire Emperor Joker storyline, but as part of the Kelly run, you do see that at the end Joker is locked up and he's even more unhinged as normal. So I actually thought the Spectre just dumped all these terrible crow eating memories in to the Clown Prince of Crime. But but you might be right. I might have read that wrong. I mean, I might have read that wrong. I don't. I have to go back and look at that. Or if anyone listening or watching has their own take on it, you know, feel free to share. Uh, but yeah, in either event, right? You know, Bruce's mind being tampered with, uh, always, always a big deal. But you know, that bit of business is dealt with. And then also, now I'm jumping back to ending battle. But uh, you know, after that story, we you know Clark pieces together that Pa Kent's apparent memory loss, which was a bit of a recurring 
uh, thread in the books at the time, right? Because he's Pakhan goes missing during our Worlds at War, and then he eventually shows up, but he seems to have dementia or the early signs of it. Uh, and then what Clark is able to piece together is that that was the that was due to the machinations of Manchester Black reaching into Jonathan's mind and and I guess getting information about Clark and I suppose that process uh, caused these issues. So thankfully, Pa doesn't you know doesn't have Alzheimer's or, or something like that. But a really poignant uh, emotional scene in the in the Kent kitchen where you know they're talking about this and Pa's like you know I I, I let you down. Right, because I let you know Manchester Black, you know, probed my mind, and uh, and Superman, I think, is talking to his therapist as he's recounting this, and he's like, you know, I, you know, I'm I'm invulnerable, and like my my father was still, you know, he, he was was still upset that he wasn't able to protect me. Uh, I thought that was plot wise, it was it was good to kind of get some resolution to the you know to pause storyline at the time, but I think on a deeper level, you know, just that again that Kent family scene, I thought was really really great. Yeah, I mean to to use Pa as the ultimate source of of the secret identity, I thought was great because there are so many places that Manchester could have picked it out of, but who's going to hurt the most, right? Who's going to cause the most damage? And it's like, oh, your 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 stoic, you know, salt of the earth father. If if he knows that he's the one who ultimately did it, well, that's going to hurt way longer after Manchester has, has walked off the stage. So I thought that was a great another bit of making sure that the, the pain lingered a little bit more. And again, it just shows that Manchester hates Superman, not because of just what he did to him, but because of how good he keeps on being no matter what. It's like, why won't you fall to my level? Why won't you prove my worldview? And when he can't, Manchester's only recourse is to hurt because that's all Manchester knows is pain. So I, I thought that was an amazing scene. And yeah, when he's telling the therapist, like, I'm invulnerable and still this this guy got hurt. And it's just like, yeah, that makes sense because to tell a good Superman story doesn't mean everyone's got to have kryptonite. It means like he's still human at the end of the day. How do you hurt a human? Well, you know, betrayal or you hurt one of those near him. So I, I thought it was pitch perfect. I want to keep us moving. And, you know, we've, we've talked about Zod or Zed as it might be fair to call him in, in this, -word. in this incarnation. Uh, but again, you know, this version of general Zod had been floating around the books for a while. He played a role in our worlds at war. You know, he triggered these memories of guilt, uh, in Superman, right? Because of course he had executed a Zod in the, in the burn story that we had talked about. And in these Kelly stories, we finally get some resolution and some clarity into exactly who this Zod is. And again, we talked about Superman not killing him, but do you want to share, you had sent me a link to an article on CBR that, that kind of dug into who Zod, who this Zod was, but more importantly, who he was originally intended to be. Do you want to share that? Cause I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, sure. So for anyone listening who just wants a little bit of context, um, there was the earlier Zod who was executed during the John Byrne run, and then there's the later Zod who Jeff Loeb or Jeff Johns would introduce shortly after this. Uh, this is early 2000s General Zod. He is a Russian supervillain, and he is a presence for a while. He wears this very garish red armor. You never see his face. You never know anything about him. You know that uh, his main minion is a character named Ignition, who wears cargo pants for some reason. Um, and uh, he 
thinks of Zod or Zed as his master. Um, and again, the Zed reference is because there's a random issue in the middle of it where you see his personal scribbling, uh, scribblings, and at one point he refers to himself as Zed. So in the back of my mind, that was my way of differentiating him from the actual characters that will have that name. Um, and then ultimately it turns out that, that this character, Zed, is an unrelated uh, Russian cosmonaut who went through a series of tragedies and ended up to be the the inverse of Superman, uh, only powered under red light, had a horrific upbringing, uh, uses his power to hurt others. Just just the the you know as bright a light as Superman is, this guy is the darkest shadow. Um, but something I didn't realize until I did this reread is that was not the original plan for him. So Brian Cronin at CBR did an interview with Kelly where Kelly admitted that the original plan was that Zed would be the version of Clark Kent shown or at least hinted at in the two Return to Krypton stories. So the the Silver Age version. Um, I don't think Anthony mentioned before that they ended up being a phantom zone projection or something along those lines. I don't think that was the original plan. I think it was supposed to be a bit more nebulous than that. And the idea was that Clark, who would have been born there because the world was saved, would have eventually come to uh, Earth composite, post-crisis Earth, whatever the, whatever you want to call it, and he would have been Zed. So the big reveal when that armor, again, this like Doctor Doom-esque armor, when that came off, uh, Clark would be staring at himself, and the fight would have been all that much more important. But that's that's not what we got. I, I don't think it affects the story that much, because he still looks like Clark, and a lot of the details are there. But again, knowing that 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 was the original intent, again, it just helps me give more credit to Kelly on the original design of the narrative. Yeah, no, no, thank you for uh, for laying that out. And, you know, it, it's funny, I've talked about this before, but, you know, of course, one of the edicts post-crisis was that Clark will be, Kal-El will be the, the la- truly the last son of Krypton. And I think, in theory, that's great. But, you know, what we ended up with, you know, was, was this whole bunch of, you know, uh, Krypton, Tonian light characters, right? So we got the Matrix Supergirl, and we got the Pocket Universe Zod, and then we get this Zed character, and then you skipped over one, uh, the Brian Azzarello for Tomorrow version of Zod, uh, like another Phantom Zone variation. I have never read that story. So there you go. But so, and it wouldn't be until the the Jeff Johns Richard Donner arc on Action Comics where they brought in the the a true Kryptonian Zod, uh, which. You know, I mean, I don't know. Necessity is the mother of invention. So it's like on the one hand, you know, the creative teams had to get more creative if they wanted to have a version of Zod. But I guess I always felt whether it's, and I guess Zod and and Supergirl are the two most egregious examples of this, where it's like, if you really want to have these characters, then I think you should just have them. I don't know that it's necessarily worthwhile to jump through all these hoops to have these alternate versions that aren't quite them. Um, all that being said, I agree with you. I think that, and I actually, I think the article that you sent, Kelly acknowledged that initially, right, the idea was that that Krypton in the Phantom Zone would be the Silver Age Krypton. And, you know, I, I assume editorial or the higher ups, you know, kind of kind of knock that down. But I, I don't, I, I do agree with you. I don't know that the story suffered much for the change because you still have that, that inverse of of Superman. And I think that's the most important part. 
if it had literally been an actual version of Kal-El from a different crypt. I mean, I, I, I don't know how much more that adds. Uh, to be honest, part it's funny because when I first read that, I was like, oh, like, that's what a twist. But then I was like, I don't know. I feel like that might have been a bridge too far. I, the only the only reason I, I say I do like it is because again he comics are a visual medium. Zed's got a really like an iconic look, right? A lot of Superman's villains they have great looks that evolve over time. Zed when he appears he's wearing this over like again like doom like just red ridiculous uh he looks like a cross between a warhammer character and a gundam and i love it because it's over the top and it's ridiculous um but it's it's also purposeful you never see this character's face so over the years it's building up it's like well what's what's under there why are we not seeing his face he's as strong as superman superman's actually shown to have like recurring nightmares of the fact that zed is able to break his jaw which is something that most characters can't do. Um, so Clark is actually a little afraid of him, which I thought was great. Um, but this, this whole idea of like, well, you've shown me a man in a mask with unlimited power. Eventually you're going to take that mask off. Who's going to be underneath. And I love the reveal that when he takes the mask off, it's him. Because again, at that point, Clark has seen Zed do terrible, awful things, both to, you know, his own countrymen in the, in the Baltic region. Um, but also literally anyone else. I mean, Zed is just, he's murdered, he's done bad things, and he keeps saying, I'm doing this for the right reason. And then when the mask comes off and it's Clark, especially that that silver age, that that Clark who, who remembers when the American way was added to his motto, to me, that that really hits the hammer home because it's like, you know, Clark, you aren't this way because you've always been this way. You are this way because you constantly try to do good and to help those around you and to help everyone. So it was one of these things where it was like, just because you're you doesn't mean you'd be this way. It's a constant struggle. Um, and there's throwaway lines. Zed says something about, well, I had my face reconstructed. It's like, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, yeah, you get there in the end and no one, again, no one is clamoring to reread this story 20 years later. But knowing just that extra little bit of information, it's like, oh, you were thinking about this the entire time. You know, there was... There there was a, a plan and you edit it as things came up. Fine. Great. All, all good creators can do that. But you did have something planned. And I think that's, that's a big deal because there were a lot of issues in there uh, that needed to occur before the payoff did. And I, again, I just think it was great. Well, I think, yeah, I think they kind of backed themselves into a corner because like you said, I mean, he's, you know, he's masked for so long that it's like, well, okay, there has to be some reason for that. And so, again, I guess they tried to have their cake and eat it too by, uh, you know, by having him have had the surgery to look like Superman, uh, which, yeah. you know, I, you know, it's funny too, not, not to nitpick, but the, even though that version of Krypton in the Phantom Zone ended up being a fabrication by Brainiac 13, I mean, Crypto makes it out of the Phantom Zone and, and is there. So I don't know. I feel like there was a way they could have still done this story, even if the Phantom Zone Krypton wasn't the Krypton or a Krypton. But anyway, that's, that's not the way they were. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I, I thought this way when I read return to Krypton the first time I, I I'm 37. I have no nostalgia for the silver age of Krypton, but clearly Jeff Loeb does. And clearly he wanted crypto back because what is he doing? Batman versus Superman. He immediately brings back 
Kara Zor-El. Like there was an ongoing Supergirl book at the time, the one written by Peter David, the Matrix Supergirl, CRL, who we see a little bit in this book. Like there were other Supergirls and Loeb was like, no, I want my Supergirl. I want the real Supergirl. So, you know, it's like, I want this. How am I going to get it? Well, in this case, it was Crypto's going to come out of this VR world, but for some reason he's going to be real. That's fine. Whatever. You want him to have a dog? I want him to have a dog too. But yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, if you wanted this to be the adult version of Clark, you could have done that. I mean, they kind of do it in Godfall later on too. So, I mean, whatever. It's one of those things where it's like, if you know this extra bit of information, it helps all that much more. But I, I still do think they got there, certainly with the way the Zed-Clark relationship is closed out. Yeah, agreed. And and again, just this idea of, of the inverse where, you know, uh, you know his, his mother is, is killed giving birth, right? And he ends up being taken by the government and experimented on, like all the things that Jonathan and Martha feared for Clark that thankfully didn't happen because they were there. All that, uh, I, I think it works. And, you know, so the story is called The Harvest and it runs from action 801 through 805, I believe. And, uh, you know, Zed uh, orchestrates this um, uh, this metahuman virus that creates all these new metahumans in, uh, in the United States. And then he proposes this fix that requires, they're basically, I mean, long story short, they create this uh, solar trigger that activates all these metahumans. And the way to uh, correct that is to turn the sun red. Uh, with these devices that will change, will filter the sunlight. Uh, and of course, it's it's all a plot. But it does lead to, you know, Superman and Lex having to team up, which was great. And again, at this point in the story, you know, Lex has had his memory erased and he knows his memory of Superman's identity has been erased. So that does give it a cool angle. But man, I wish he had still known at this point. I feel like that, that would have been... I think that would have been more entertaining and more effective. But again, I appreciate that Kelly dealt, you know, finally dealt with this, uh, this iteration of, of general Zod. I mean, I don't know. You know I, don't, I don't know that this version has ever been referenced since and probably wouldn't be, I, you know, I, I, you know, I mean like the pocket universe Zod was at least, of, you know, essentially the version of Zod. It's just, you know, he was from a pocket universe, but otherwise had all of the same attributes of, you know, the pre-crisis odd. And of course the claim had the claim to fame of being executed by Superman. So I think that gives him a little bit more of a, of a space in the mythology. I don't know that there's really as much here that would really earn Zed a similar spot, but it was a moment in time where this was the version of Zod we had to work with. No, you're right. But also it, it the character of Zed uses the mythology of Zod to trick the reader into thinking that that's who he's going to face, right? You think when that mask comes off, you're going to see uh, Terrence Stamp, right? You're going to see him. You're going to say like, oh man, I, I would have saved Krypton. I would have found a way. You're weak. You're, you're Jor-El's boy. You, you know, everything we're expect, but that's not the case. Like he, he has the name General Zod because of some, backwards explanation that I don't even want to go into, but at the end of the day, he's not really Zod. The reader is supposed to think he's Zod. He keeps telling everyone to kneel before him, but again, they were building up to this big reveal where that that mask would come off, and it's it's not Zod. It's not Terrence Stamp. It's not the guy he he executed a few years before. It's him. It's his face, and and he's doing this terrible thing. You know, it's, it's Kal-El, son of Jor-El. So again, I, I thought it was another feint. Like, most people would probably say, oh yeah, wasn't there General Zod from the early 2000s? That didn't go anywhere. And it's like, well, yeah, but I would also say, like, he was just pretending to be Zod because he was trying to tell you a, a different uh, story about why uh, Superman has to be who he is. So, I, again, it, it 
it's not my favorite Superman story of all time. I really do appreciate it. I think it does a lot right. But yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly a product of its time. I, well said. I, I think that's a great take. I, I think that ultimately, you know, the the nightmares, literally and figuratively, that it conjured in in Superman and what he was able to work out in therapy, which I still think was a great touch that Loeb and Kelly played with. Uh, and again, it's something that you don't typically see, but that rang true. Uh, I think that's the value of of this version of the character, and and the fact that again we're now going back, you know, well over a decade, you know, so this was early two thousands, but going back well well over a decade to the end of the burn saga, um, and still dealing with the psychological ramifications of executing the criminals. So I I think that was the true value, rather than you know adding a you know a, a character with staying power to the mythology. I don't think it did that, but it worked in other ways, and but I you know. You did mention it's like how he got the names odd. I mean, he, as he's recounting his origin, there's this bit where he talks about, you know, like he, he, being contacted or hearing a voice or sensing something from the void. I mean, I don't know if I guess the implication is that the spirit of the Zod who Superman executed was influencing him in some way. It's it's not explored any more beyond that. And so it's one of those things that is this guy really just crazy or was there something a little bit spiritual slash metaphysical going on? It, it's 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 weird because it's got a it's a very it has a very strange implication. Either John Burns, General Zod, who was killed because Superman was so afraid he would find a way to get his power back and come to his world, survive that as a ghost or spirit or something else and was able to do just that and really get his revenge, thus proving that Superman had no reason to execute these guys. And that's, that's dark, but that doesn't seem to really be played on. So again, I don't know if that was the intent. Um, but the other idea too, is if you imagine that this was originally supposed to be silver age, Clark raised in a world uh, that wasn't supposed to survive, then there could have been a Zod there and he could have just known of the character, excuse me, known of the man on that world. And he could have adopted the name because he knew that, um, you know, that would be a fearsome presence. And maybe that would also explain why that Clark uh, fell off the wagon. You know, we don't know that Jor-El and Lara would have been great parents, but certainly if he wanted to rebel, going and being a follower of Zod would have been a great way to do it. So again, it's one of those things where it's not explained in the text, so I don't know how much you want to read into it. But yeah, if you take the one panel reason for the name out of context, it goes to a very dark place very quickly. <laughs> so... Yes, very, very true. Uh, were there, other than Walking Midnight, which I'll save for the very end, uh, were there any other, and again, I know we haven't gone through literally every issue here, but sure. other other issues that you specifically wanted to make sure that we talked about from the action issues? Um, from the action issues? Well, one thing I, I noticed uh, a while ago is on 760, his very first issue, his name is spelled wrong on the cover. So uh, <laughs> I don't know if if everyone is familiar with this, but these were a big deal. They were four issues and the covers all linked up. So if you bought all four, you got a nice big picture you couldn't really do anything with, but but it was nice. And it, it led to four new ongoing series. And that was Joe Kelly's first. It, it may have been one of his first uh, comics at DC altogether. And his name has an extra E on the cover. And I just, I always kind of get a kick out of that because he was on the book for so long. And uh, that's the first time anyone saw his name and it, it was wrong. Um, I never noticed that. And now I just pulled it up on the app. And yeah, you're 100% right. 
<laughs> yeah, it's it's one of those things where it was like, of course, you know, of, of course this, this guy starts out that way, regardless of the fact that he's written the character for at least 100 issues between this, this and Justice League. Um, the other thing I wanted to bring up was uh, for Action 800, one of the vignettes that I really liked was there's a lot of visuals in his run about uh, the Blackhawks who were characters from the 50s who were fighter pilots um, in the 50s, but they were fighter pilots during World War II. And you see their jet craft a lot during the President Lex run and the um, the fight with Zed later on and our worlds at war. And it's just kind of like a shorthand of like, hey, the United States still has the Blackhawks. They've had them for a while and now they can fight battles in space. It's, it's never developed. I just thought it was a nice bit of world building. Um in Action 800, you see a couple of pages of a character whose mother called him Flyboy, and he loves Superman. And at the end, you just you see him uh, getting into a Blackhawk to become, you know, part of the U.S. Air Force or whatever branch of the military they're under. And he has this great line, and he says, "I still have the cape from when I was a little kid pretending to be Superman, but now it's hanging in my closet next to my dress blues." And I love that. Because again, it's this idea that Superman inspires everyone to do good, to use what you have to help others to be in the service of others. And that was one of those things where every time I read it, I'm like, yes, that guy still exists. I don't care how many times you reboot the continuity. Whenever I read a Blackhawk comic, that that guy is flying around, him and Zinda. Like, I just, I love that. That was one of those things where it's only a couple of pages, but it really sticks with me. Right on. You know, we mentioned, of course, earlier that, you know, Joe Kelly would go on to have about a 30-issue run, more or less, on JLA. And again, not touching on that here, might be fodder for an episode down the line. Again, I did read it when it was originally coming out. I would be open to revisiting it. He also wrote 11 issues of Superboy after Carl Kiesel and Tom Grummet left. And he wrote 83 to 93. And then Dan DiDio, right, as he was coming on to, to DC... Uh, wrote the final issues uh, because the series ended with, with number 100. Uh, I, I only revisited the first few issues of the Kelly Superboy run. I, to be honest, I might go back to it again when I do a fuller deep dive into that Superboy series. But, and I read these as they were coming out because uh, at that point, I didn't read the Superboy series from the beginning, but I got into it when they did the Hypertime story. And then I kept reading. So I had been reading for a little while when he came on with this. And I think I enjoyed it well enough at the time, revisiting the first few issues here, especially coming off of the action work, because I felt like there, there was really, um, it, it, again, really strong character work and emotionally resonant uh, in, in terms of how he depicted Clark and the relationship with Lois. And, you know, clearly he was going for something very different. And, and Connor's a different character, and especially that at that point in time i didn't find as much that i really connected with and so i, I didn't revisit the whole run there uh you know I, I don't know that i would be so quick to write off the whole thing just yet i would i would spend a little bit more time with it at some point in the future um did you have any uh any any reaction to to kelly superboy work uh i really really like in i think it's the first issue of that run where um uh, Superboy Connor is yelling at Superman and he's like, you don't know anything. And at one point Superman just goes, I like Metallica. And then they very specifically talk about their favorite albums 
And I was floored because I love Metallica and I was not expecting to see that in the text and for Superman to be a fan. Cause we always think, we always think of Superman as being like very stoic and it's like, yeah, you know what? He does love injustice for all. And it was just one of those things where it was like, I, I like this version of the character even more. And it was just this, this throwaway thing. This this way of uh, showing Connor that, you know, he doesn't have all the answers. No one has all the answers, but, but this guy isn't as far away from you as you think. And uh, I really like that scene. Aside from that, there is an issue towards the end of the run that features the character of the guardian, uh, who is an old Jack Kirby character that was created shortly after captain America. Um, and he is cloned repeatedly, so he shows up in a lot of DC Comics long after his original uh, thing. And uh, he is writing a letter home to the uh, family of a serviceman that he was with in the field, I think, during our Worlds at War. And it's just this very touching examination of like, hey, I'm a superhero, and I'm going to get through things, and I hung out with Superboy, and I did all this other stuff, but that doesn't mean that the sacrifice that your son that everyone else did was any less. And I really like that because I wasn't expecting it in a Superboy book, which is a lot of topical references and jokes and, and a lot of like teenage stuff. It's very different from the action run, but I, I like that. Um, Kelly was able to use this, this old school Kirby character with a lot of pedigree and tell just a great heartfelt, simple story. And uh, I, I thought that was really good. It doesn't connect to anything else really, but uh and then the other thing I wanted to mention about the Action Comics run that we didn't get a chance to go on is one of my favorite bits, and it's 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 throwaway, but I love it. The very first scene in Kelly's first issue, 760, features a character called Dr. Spectro. And for those of you who don't know, he is an old uh, Steve Ditko, who's co-creator of Spider-Man. He created that character when he was working on the original Captain Adam, before Captain Adam was even owned by DC. So so again, a character with a lot of pedigree, probably hadn't been seen in a very long time, uh, and created by one of the masters. And that character of Dr. Spectro returns in 810, Kelly's last issue. And again, he doesn't pose a threat to Superman. Superman just shows up and talks to the guy. He doesn't have any great powers, but it's this idea of like Kelly understood the long-term structure of his narrative. And he kind of closes it out with this very nice, again, simple, stupid, just bookend where it's like, I came in, I wanted to show you a version of Superman that was all good and all compassionate and he's still around and I'm leaving. And even to tie it back to our discussion earlier about, you know, do you put everything back in the toy box? I said, I don't think that's important, but Kelly really does that. You know, he really does put everything back where he found it because that's how it was given to him. So there is something to be said about that. Certainly, uh, especially if you're on the book long enough to tell 50 issues worth of stories, which even a character who's been around as long as Superman, most writers haven't done that. So I I thought it was a nice bit of symmetry. I love that as well. And, you know, it's something that when I read 810, when it first came out, to be honest, I probably wouldn't have thought back to Dr. Spectro, Spectro in, in, in 760. But now, having gone through all of it, uh, you know, in, in such a, a close period of time, you know, that I definitely register that. I was not aware of Dr. Spectro's uh, uh, history. So I, I just thought that this was a character Kelly cooked up for this. So I, I appreciate getting, getting the context there. Uh, again, I want to talk about that final issue. But the 
just one other piece that I know I said we would touch on. I did not get a chance to read uh, the two Superman Batman annuals that uh, that Kelly wrote. He did wrote one and two. Uh, but is there anything that you want to say about either or both of those before we wrap up our discussion of action? So for those of who don't know, um, the two annuals, so Superman Batman annual one and annual two are both retellings of Silver Age stories. Uh, the first one is the first time Batman and Superman learned each other's secret identities uh, back in an old world's finest comics from, I think, the 50s. And the second one is a retelling of Superman losing his powers, adopting another costumed identity, and kind of dealing with things until he gets his powers back. So Kelly took old stories that were relatively well-known, I think. I, I had read them in reprint editions at that point, and he retold them in a modern audience, but he did it in a very humorous way. Um, and I, I love these two annuals. I, I think they're some of Kelly's best work. Again, they're both self-contained, um, but they're really about the, the rivalry of Batman versus Superman. And again, not a hateful one, but like a fraternal one. Like, there's, there's a ton of jokes. Um, there's... I, I love them. I, I know you haven't read them or haven't read them in a while, but uh, the first one features a return of Deadpool, who, those of you who aren't aware, uh, Deadpool was created to be a knockoff of Deathstroke, obviously a DC character, and Joe Kelly wrote Deadpool in such a way that he's he's pretty much the reason Deadpool is as popular as he is. Um, so Kelly brought back an alternate version of Deathstroke who just essentially was Deadpool. And I'm not explaining it great. It's a little confusing, but if you do get a chance to read that issue, Deadpool's in it. Uh, you know, you don't call him that, but it's, it's great and it's very funny. And uh, it's just, it's an irreverent take on the world's finest, the two most famous intellectual properties. So it's a great read. It doesn't change anything, but it's, it's one I've read, I would say, uh, uh, probably more than a lot of the other issues in the run of the years. Right on. No, I will I will check them out, and I'm sorry I didn't get to them for this. So Kelly's final issue, right, uh, number 810, I love it for, I guess, three reasons. So the basic setup, as said before, is that it's New Year's Eve, and Clark takes Lois to New Year's Eve celebrations in every time zone around the world. So they get to celebrate, ring in the New Year uh, over and over, um, You know, which I thought was a cool setup. But it led to, you know, the, the title of the episode, uh, issue of, of Walking Midnight, we get the explanation for it when they stop in Smallville to spend New Year's with Ma and Pa. And Lois is on the, uh, or I guess, I don't know, she's inside with, but she's talking to Martha. And Martha is uh, explaining, or she's asking Martha about when this tradition started for Clark. And Martha says, well, you know, when he first was able to fly, and he was 19 and he was flying around. She goes, but it really comes from his father because Jonathan would, as he called it, walk midnight at the house that no matter what time he went to sleep, even if he went to bed at eight o'clock, he would wake up at midnight and walk around the house and check all the windows and the doors and look in on Clark and make sure that he was having good dreams. And she equates that to what Clark does on New Year's. Clark also walks midnight, but Clark's house is the whole world. And I just thought that was such a beautiful sentiment. It's something I do. I mean, I stay up way too late. I'm working on that. But I mean, I go to bed at like two usually. And so I walk 2 a.m. And I check on everything, <laughs> including our son. And I think I do that at least. I think there's a tiny part that does it because of that issue of Superman. Because I always that always stuck with me. I love that idea of Pa Kent walking midnight and his son walking midnight for the world. So I love that. That's number one. Number two, 
it all t- it's beautiful how it all ties together. You know, uh, in prior episodes, we talked about Dan Jurgens and the Metropolis mailbag issues that he would do where Superman would read letters written to him and, and help people. And so Kelly brings back that tradition here. It's, it's New Year's instead of Christmas, but still the same idea. So along the way, as yes, they're going to all of these celebrations, but Superman is also responding to people's pleas for help. Uh, you know, bringing, uh, you know, uh, medical personnel to this uh, remote village where a woman's about to give birth, things like that. And, uh, you know, again, very much a theme in in Kelly's work and and other writers as well. But this idea of him truly caring and, and being compassionate and trying to be that friend and neighbor and help however he can, right? And just like whether it's, you know, offering a supervillain a second chance or again, bringing medical help to this remote village, uh, you know, maybe, you know, hope, you know, being able to help in a way that's not just punching someone in the face, but really showing how much he cares. And I love that. And then the final thing is the final scene. Uh, I like you, I love the symmetry. I love the circular ending going back to Kelly's first issue, but you know, Dr. Spectro asks him like, what's it like being you? And Superman says, as he flies off, he goes, honestly, it's the greatest and and I love that because it's that's rings true, and again just to leave the character in that place, especially after all he's been through over this era, you know, through our worlds at war and all of these other stories, uh, it just really resonated. I, I thought it was a, a just a, a beautiful way to end. And instead of a quote from from Clark, we have a, a nice little parting message from uh, Joe Kelly thanking everyone. So I, I love that issue. It is one of my favorites. One of my favorite Superman holiday issues. Uh, as well. Was there anything that, that you wanted to talk about with that issue? I I love that issue. Not not as much as you, clearly. I, I did think <laughs> it was a great uh, way to wrap up. But one thing I didn't mention that we, we haven't so far is he's he worked with some great co-creators. Um, he worked with Pascal Ferry uh, for art for much of the run. His art's amazing. I the love it. Really had- yeah. 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 They, they really, they gelled very well. You can, you can see that even more on Superboy. I think he was the artist for most of that. It's just it's amazing stuff. Early on, the artist uh, Kano, K A N O, uh, Duncan Rolu. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And then later on, there were covers by Dave Bullock, like just some amazing stuff. Uh, on 775, there was a cover by Tim Bradstreet. There's a couple of pages in between the, the Doug Monk pages by Ed Russo, like just some stunning stuff like really like he had a he had great artists the entire time and it was one of those things where it was like every issue i picked up it's like this looks beautiful even if i didn't even if i didn't want to read it because of the writer it's like this is still something that's just a great looking comic i just wanted to mention that because we we talk a lot about the writer but obviously this is a collaborative medium we wouldn't still be talking about this if he didn't if he wasn't blessed with a great art team Yes, no, well said. I concur with all of that. And with Ferry in particular, I really loved his stuff. And for a lot of it, uh, Cam Smith was the inker who had also inked Ed McGinnis on Superman. And I don't know if it's Ferry style in and of itself. I'm sure having the same inker helped as well. But I, I love Ed McGinnis's art, but I know for some it was maybe a little, a little bit too much and i feel like fairy like struck a really nice balance where it had like the shades of of the style that you know mcginnis had established for superman at this time but um you know i don't know maybe a little bit more of a traditional take you know if you weren't fully into the mcginnis look uh but i love his stuff i, t- I took some screenshots as i was as i was reading uh, that, I'll, that i'll post uh because i and you know it's why i looked him up i don't it doesn't seem like he's done anything in recent years uh, i don't know 
I don't know uh, offhand. Um, maybe I'll try to look him up on social media, but uh, I would love to see him do some more comic book work. I really did like his stuff here. Yeah, same. His his name's always a good time. Uh, uh, buy you could buy an issue by him, and again, it's you're not going to feel bad for having uh, spent the money. So I, I agree. All right, my friend. That was the Joe Kelly era of action comics. Is there anything that you want to say before we sign off? Uh, yeah, there was one thing I wanted to ask you that has nothing to do with Joe Kelly before you mentioned that now the early Triangle days are your favorite run. Uh, I may be off on the timing here, but a lot of those are written by Roger Stern, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So is it him? Is it someone else? Like, who would you who would you say are the architects of that run, writer-wise? So Ordway, Jurgens, and Stern. And then later, Louise Simonson. So really like the early, the early, the start of the, well, actually even the, what I guess what I call the proto-triangle era, because after Byrne left, uh, we that's when we got into the Superman in Exile and, and, and all of that, which was terrific. So the books were now really starting to work very closely together, despite having different creative teams, even though they didn't have the triangle numbers yet. So I really do include, really from that post-Byrne period through the the death and rain. I mean, that's, I think, now kind of my sweet spot. And so, again, we're talking Ordway, Jurgen, Stern, and Louise Simonson uh, on, on the writing front. And the thing is, it's not even so much that I liked, I mean, I think they're all terrific, but it's not even so much that, like, oh, one of them was really the draw. That's what I love about it, is that <laughs> the draw was the way they were all working together. And, you know, that was something that changed with the Loeb Kelly era. You know, they utilized the triangle numbers and yes, there were certainly still crossovers. Uh, and there were th- threads that, you know, carried through the books, but it wasn't the weekly soap opera that it, it had be- that it had been before. And, you know, whether that's a positive or not is, I, you know, I think, you're, you know, you're, people have different perspectives on that because if you didn't like having to buy all the books and, you know, and that aspect of it, if you wanted the books to have more autonomy, then this era might, you know, might be preferable. But uh, again, I love them. I love them both. But that early triangle period was really, really something special. Yeah. Roger Stern in particular is one of my favorite writers of all time. I I still seek out anything that he does. And uh, I've definitely gone back to that era and uh, reread his stuff. And it's amazing. And it holds up very well. And he's another guy who completely understands the character before he ever writes a single word. And you can tell because there's, there's no selling himself on the character. It's, it's all great stuff. Um, he's one of the reasons that I always point out the matrix Supergirl is not being as bad as everyone remembers. There's a lot of heart there. And some of the stories are weird. They are products of their time, but not the worst incarnation of the character. And, and Stern uh, has a lot to, uh, a lot of responsibility for a lot of that stuff. Uh, he wrote a great run on Action Comics Weekly. I don't know if that's considered part of the Triangle era, but every time I, I read something by him, regardless of the character, I love it. But in particular, I think he really understood Superman very well. I, I wish he were writing him today. <laughs> All right. I don't want to end our Joe Kelly episode with a tribute to Roger Stern. <laughs> <laughs> They're two great creators. I I, I think uh, I think they'd be friends. I, I uh, yeah. No, I don't disagree. <laughs> it feels like a weird note to end on. I want to say, you know, I don't know if Joe Kelly will ever uh, listen to this. You know, I wrote an article last year for Thirteenth Dimension: Thirteen Reasons to Revisit the Loeb Kelly Era, and uh, he did respond to it on on Twitter, and we had a brief exchange. Uh, I'll, I'll tweet this episode to him. I, I don't know that he would ever listen, or certainly that he would listen to two hours and twenty minutes of it, but. Uh, I just, I'll put this out here on the record that uh, I'm very appreciative of Kelly's work on the character. 
And there are, you know, certain issues, all the ones that we talked about that, you know, kind of have always stayed with me and I think will continue to stay with me. And, you know, would I necessarily reread the Zed storyline on a whim? No, probably not. But you know what? The Walking Midnight or the Missing Person issue or 775 or 761, you know, there there are a number that I think I that would sort of be those evergreen Superman stories for me. So I am very appreciative of his work and this entire era. And when I talk about the triangle era superseding it, that's not to put this down. And, and the, the, the Loeb Kelly years, I think, will always have a very special place for me. And I think there's a lot of stuff that was great then and still holds up now. And, you know, for anyone who hasn't read this stuff, as we've been talking about it, you know, I, I, I encourage you to check it out. Thank you, Mike, for taking part in this episode. I really do appreciate it. For people who want to hear more from the two of us, our discussion of the Lana-centric Lost Hearts four-parter is available right now at patreon.com slash Anthony Desiato at the $1 level with a money-back guarantee. So I hope you'll check it out. And the patrons, I, I hope you'll enjoy the episode. Thank you to everyone who has listened, whether you've listened to one episode or a few or all of them. I hope you have a terrific holiday, whichever holiday you celebrate. Hope you have a very happy new year. I hope you walk midnight on New Year's, whatever that might mean for you. And please come back the first week of January 2022 for the first of five weekly episodes as we look at the legendary, the classic Superman, the animated series. And if you enjoyed our recent discussion of Batman, the long Halloween we are going to be continuing to incorporate discussions of other characters uh, in the years ahead. So there's a lot of great stuff to come. I hope you will join us for all of it. And until then, remember, it's about what you do. It's about action. Digging for Kryptonite is a Flat Squirrel production. Art by Greg Schiegel. Music by Basic Printer. Join the conversation by becoming part of the Flat Squirrel Podcast Network Facebook group. Follow Digging for Kryptonite on Instagram and Twitter and visit flatsquirrelproductions.com to explore more of my film and podcast projects.